We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. We are presented to you by my bookie. And this show, Alan, maybe more than any show we've ever done, could be the most exciting one. I don't know. There's so many things to talk about. I mean, what's going through your mind right now? This is going to be an episode of episodes, I think. I'm hyped. We got to talk about Darth Mullen himself. Big win over Missouri. The team showed up after a lot of chaos. Sets up a really awesome Georgia week. This is going to be fun. I'm ready. Just so many things to dig into. I told Alan before the show, and don't panic, listeners, that I'm going to do what I do on television for my professional job. I'm going to try to really stick everything with just quick, solid, to-the-point answers and expound only when necessary. Not to rob you of time, but actually because there's just so many things to cover and so many things. And now that I'm doing these these long film breakdowns which you should totally catch on on YouTube, a lot of this stuff visually is there, but we're going to try it. And if you hate it, write to us and say James, please <laughs> We'll be, see if you can do it. That's more, more verbose, but yeah, my my Italian ancestry kind of demands that I that I speak probably more than maybe even I should. But right off the top, as always, if you like the content, if you've been listening for years or for 3 minutes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, become a patron on Patreon, and check us out on YouTube where you can subscribe to our film breakdown videos. We break down the games we just played as well as the games that we will have on the docket ahead of us. So later this week, we will release a Georgia film breakdown, what to look for in that game. And of course, for you longtime listeners, you know how much we love our patrons. Each and every week, we get to celebrate those that come on board as new patrons and those that level up and Really, this week was another exceptional week, Alan, of support for the show. Uh, great messages, great things going on, and a very important announcement that we will be making here in just Hello. a few moments. So medium dono, Paul Wexler coming in as a new patron. Thank you, Paul. Welcome aboard. And then three new Trask donos, uh, Carson Tulo, Jonathan Levy, 
and then Phil Bowerman. Yeah, what up, Phil? Welcome aboard, dude. Yeah, welcome. Great to have all of you. Of course, a level up from Evan Davis to XL Dono. Man, going big. Trask to XL. Like, Trask is inspiring these kind of performances. And then we have a hundo bomb and then some called the Gator Genesis. It's a dollar for every year since the Gators' first season by Aaron Jeter, also known as the younger and better Jeter, hashtag suck at Nathan. Nathan, <laughs> Nathan Jeter is is our Dono legend, and Aaron Jeter's coming in hot. Which yeah, is, just I love that you can write anything, and I guess we'll read it. We're going to do it, which is absolutely amazing. Hashtag I, suck at Nathan I from love it. his little brother Aaron. I love it. I love it. And then the biggest news of the week, Alan. On Monday, I come into the office. I'm, I'm super busy. And what do I have? I have a king challenge from Diego Rivera, who came hot after Alexander Leventhal before. This has been a battle for the throne. And GNFP listeners, for the first time in our history, we have a new king. Whoa. The benevolent reign of Alexander Leventhal has ended. We need some like, fanfare here. Diego <laughs> Rivera is the new wow. king of the GNFP Diego, welcome to the throne. Alexander Leventhal still in the courtroom. And in fact, just to peel back the curtain here of how this works. So Alexander wanted a new protocol. He wanted one where essentially we'd ping him one time. So the king gets pinged only one time, Alan, each week. So if someone surpasses your level of support, we send a message to you and say, hey, you've been dethroned. That's the only message you get. You have no idea by how much. And then it's up to the king to sort of blind bid themselves into figuring out whether or not they're higher or lower, and they don't know what the amount is. They don't know if their amount is good enough. They have to wait for the podcast to see if, in fact, they are still the king, and a dethroning has occurred. Diego would like to, as his first order of king, give a shout-out to his fiance. That's a wonderful thing to do and a smart thing to do as a wise and benevolent king. Anna, who is also a huge Gator fan, but Diego, I don't know here. I don't know. You have not been able to convince her to listen to the pod, and now you're the king of the pod. So if that doesn't do it, I don't know, Alan, what it's going to take. But he's 75 days away from his wedding. Uh, exciting times. We're yeah, excited congrats for Congrats to both of you guys. Yeah, and thanks for the long-term support, obviously, yeah. uh, Diego. Absolutely amazing. We're always floored and thrilled to hear from all of you, whether it's $2 or you know a million dollars. We love you all the same. And, of course, we have fun celebrating these things each and every week. It does keep us going. I do want to say, really, without the support of, of our listeners— uh, message wise, right? Uh, hitting us up on DMs, financial support. I can tell you for sure I wouldn't be doing 90% of the stuff I'm doing because we do it because you get so much value out of it. It, it inspires us to come in and create what we create. So thank you for that. Uh, I do have a Dono legend announcement we also are going to make here, Alan. So we said last week there was there was a time that was dwindling for the Hundo Bomb to be your back door into becoming a Dono legend, and that is closed. Whoa. So, a.k.a. the younger and better Jeter is the last person to become a Dono legend from a hundo bomb, which seems appropriate given that he called his brother out. From now on, $300 of total support will make you a Dono legend and nothing else. That's the level you have to get to, subscribe to, attain to. Alan, read off the Dono legends for us. All right, the first one here, I guess we got to mention him again, Alexander Leventhal. He's a Dono legend, a mere Dono legend right now. We'll see what happens. Bill Hood, James Newton, uh, the aforementioned older Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Honderick, James Truitt, 
Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, and a new one here, Jason Landry, who's, uh, I guess, accumulated a bunch here. He's made it, and Jason, uh, the first college roommate of mine to have made it into this uh, yeah, step it up, other guys. grouping. Exactly. And again, we always mention Jason each and every year, but th- thank you, Jason. Of course, I've already talked to you via text message, but regardless, for your support and continued uh, you know, messaging and love, it's felt, it is appreciated. All right, Alan, it is now time to get into an episode of episodes, as I'm going to call this one. And I'm just going to let let you, we, we watched the game together, yeah. let this be known, which was great. So Alan and I were both in the swamp, so we, we can were. give you the firsthand experience of all the madness that occurred. But we talked a lot during the game. We haven't talked since the game, as per our rule, as you've reflected on it. How were you feeling, Alan, during the first half of the game? You were behind me. We were socially distanced, you know, six feet apart, and we turned around and looked at it. How are you feeling during that first half? Were you nervous at any point in time? Uh, yeah, a little bit. It was a wild game. Maybe wild is not the right word. Very strange. Um, it was not unfolding how we thought it would for the most part. I mean, of course, this was a possibility, but the way the defense was playing, the way the offense was scuffling around a little bit, Weird things happening, pick six from Trask. I would say if it had the feeling in the first half of one of those games where you watch a team not capitalize on opportunities and then lose, just where you feel snake bit. Uh, one Tyler Rummery, the first fan of the podcast, was texting to the thread, What's it? We're losing. We, I feel terrible about this game. Like he was, you know, panicking. Uh, but I think it just it felt very strange. This was a game where, you know, if you watch a lot of football, you you can kind of feel it coming. In. And to the team's credit, they rebounded in the second, the end of the first half, really through the second half, and really took control of this game. When I think a lesser team would have succumbed to maybe the pressure or things not going their way or all the adversity that they had had to face over the previous three weeks. So it's funny. I wasn't nervous, and in fact, in aforementioned text thread, I had said. At about the right time. Well, you would expect the offense to struggle a little bit with a team like Missouri coming off the layoff. And you'd expect them to get it going about now, which is when things kind of started to happen. I would have been a lot more nervous had Missouri been scoring on us. Because if if our defense is even average, I know our offense is going to score on everyone if we get enough possessions. And so I felt like that was going to happen. I wasn't seeing things Missouri was doing that was concerning me over the course of an entire game. And coupled Allen with the fact that they weren't possessing the ball for long, I felt like, hey, we're, we're going to be okay. But it was, as you mentioned, a Halloween bizarre first half for Florida. It felt like it was going to be similar to the game we played last year against them. Right. And it, it wound up not being that way, obviously, for a lot of reasons, uh, which is, I think, why this episode is going to be so interesting. Yeah. I mean, so many different storylines. Uh, we were worried if things went poorly that they were going to essentially chew up the clock, keep our offense off the field, run a ton of time possession. That was one of your keys to the game. Maybe your key to the game. And really, they did not do that at any point in the game. I, at the end of the game, we let them chew some clock and score, you know, score a touchdown after they held the ball forever. But that's fine if you want to do that when you're losing by 30. The big storyline... Other than all of the Dan Mullenness of this game, which we'll get to in just a minute, I promise. This is by far the best performance from our defense. Uh, this is a unit that was missing 
several starters, key backups. Have you done a 180 on this defense? Is this a turning point for them? Like just we're going to get into all the nitty-gritty, but just you know, big thoughts here. Did we turn everything around? So we are working diligently on our logo and branding, Alan. And maybe when we get our logo done, we're going to have like a, a little piece of merch that says that one game does not make a season <laughs> because that's like the most true thing in all of college football. And so, no, I have not done a 180. However, I will say this. This will be the turning point if things do change. This will have been it. You'll look back and you'll say, this is when things did change and the coaching staff and others did look in the mirror and they did some things their history suggests they wouldn't have done. However, you can't say that it's a turning point yet because again, one game is just one game. There's a whole bunch of reasons why this may not carry into the Georgia week. I'm not pouring cold water on this. I just think that's what you have to do with with the data. You can't just go, wow, it's, it's incredible. We're here. We're back. But certainly it was unexpected in the right kind of way. And I had one on the podcast last week saying, I don't expect us to do most of the things I'm saying. And we did quite a few of them. And that's a marked change for Grantham. But as we unpack it a little bit in the podcast, Alan, we'll see maybe more of what this looks like. But no, I'm not. I'm not to the 180 point yet. I will tell you definitively next Monday the answer to that question. I'll be able to answer that one next Monday. But this Monday, maybe there's a little more hope than what I had last Monday. And again, this is going to be the tell-all week for us. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. I mean, the whole season has to, of course, point towards this game. A&M loss really doesn't matter. Everything is riding on this Georgia game like we thought it would at the beginning of the year. It's all going to come down to that. I I'm not ready to totally flip the narrative on the defense either, but this was in stark contrast to the way that they had played previously. And Missouri is not a world beater on offense, but they had been effective to very effective at times. Um, And again, you know, I don't think our defense have been playing much better than LSU's defense and they shredded them. Uh, So that could have been what happened. Had we been playing at the same level we were playing in previously with the same kinds of mistakes with the same some of the same schematic errors it could have been either a very close game or a loss for this team and it ended up being a very dominating victory and I think Gator Nation has to feel good about that again it doesn't mean that we've arrived I think some of the maybe the coaches forced into some situations we'll get into you know with limited personnel where they had to make certain choices I don't know if they would have made otherwise this might be a a Kyle Trask, Felipe Franks kind of scenario, you are forced into the right choice or maybe not right choice, better choice. Um, so uh, quickly, how much without getting into the very, you know, details of it, how much did we change? Are we just better at doing what we had done before? We changed enough things and again we're gonna i don't want to answer this in totality now but i'll answer the question at the highlight level is that things were different than what they would have been had we had our full complement of personnel and continued on the path that we were continuing down Uh, especially if you look at how we routinely were using a strong safety like an nfl team would use a strong safety which is almost never what grantham tends to use his strong safety like so that was a marked departure 
the reason for that, Alan, was what you mentioned. We only had six total DBs in the roster that could have even played. So we played a large part of this game with four linebackers and a base defense, which historically we've been terrible when we've had to play four linebackers, especially on passing downs. Uh, so there was a lot of things that kind of forced us to do things differently. But one of the main things we did differently was something that I'm happy we did. And it was that we would not chase guys all the way across the field. We talked about this when we played man defense, that rather than have Marco Wilson, as we as we pointed out in the film study, chase you know Elijah Moore all the way across the formation and allow Old Miss to scheme you into the easiest plays ever, just pass that off. If he's going from the left to the right side, you're going to have your strong safety rotate down and then Marco Wilson would back up, right? Now, we didn't do that, but we did that every single time against Missouri. And essentially, that allowed us to be much more sound formation numbers-wise, right? Start of the play-wise to where we're not just going to give up the easiest play ever off the start. So if I had to encapsulate what the best thing was that we did, Alan, that Grantham tends to struggle the most with, is we frequently took away the first look for Missouri. And that is not something that we typically do. Now, I'll leave it at this. Grantham does tend to do well against inexperienced quarterbacks who are unproven and who struggle, but you hit the key point. Basilak, as we saw on film, is capable. He already lit up an LSU team that was trending exactly like our defense was, and we came out and put out a starkly different result, which is because we did play differently so we did change some things we did change some things um we did not maybe change some of the things you think we changed (laughs) yeah which we're going to talk about in a little bit but obviously on my defensive film study you see the fundamentals of football alan were changed the most right basic things you have to do to be a good defense the numbers game and gap control those two things were the most significant differences and it was a hallelujah improvement from where we came against AM to look at how these players, especially the D-line, were performing. And that part, Alan, doesn't surprise me because as we said on this very podcast, we felt like the D-line from the beginning had been the only real unit that seemingly was like making progress. And although they were making some mistakes you expect inexperienced players to make, we felt like David Turner knew what he was doing with this unit and they were going to be fine. And that was tremendously the case in this game. And they're not the sole reason why we do what we did, but gap control was huge in this game where it was so absent against AM. So hats off to the staff, obviously, for that. Right. It was defense who looked under control for the most part, who looked like they know what they were doing. There's some key personnel changes that we'll talk about. And then some formations and defensive alignments that we hadn't seen a lot of. And we'll talk about that a lot more. Okay. I think what the national audience, the national media is talking about is all the chaos that ensued right in the first half. Uh, watching it live in the stadium was pretty crazy. Um, so just to recap quickly, after all the weird penalties and punts, end of the half, Kyle Trask throwing a Hail Mary attempt, getting hit late by a Missouri defender. And what ensued was... You know, there's lots of different maybe opinions or maybe takes on this, but Dan Mullen coming onto the field being quite animated, agitated, uh, getting into it with the officials, getting into it with the Missouri coaches, going back and forth multiple times, not just once, but to the point where the rest of the Florida team came onto the field 
there was a, a fracas, a rumble, a battle, eventually separated and sent to the locker room. Then Dan came back out, fired up the crowd a little bit. So all of those things happened. So there's Dan's received a fair amount of criticism. He got a lot of cheers in the stadium at the moment, for sure. How did you feel about Dan on Saturday? You know, it's really funny because I grew up a Miami Hurricanes fan in the 80s. And this is, I think, really important to understand how I'm going to feel about this. And I and Inside I, into your thought And process. I loved it. Yeah. I loved when the Hurricanes would just annihilate the squeaky clean program from Notre Dame. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Um, I love the attitude, the swagger Miami had. It was all very authentic back then, which is funny now because anyone who knows me knows how much I hate these gimmicky turnover chains. And I hate that manufactured stuff. swagger. It's, manu- it's like corporate swagger, right? I like the authentic, like the players truly believe in themselves kind of swagger. So Dan Mullen, I, I don't know what's happened to him this season. It was like the Texas A&M game sent him over the edge. Or we have like a different Dan Mullen. It's like a, a Stranger Things episode. Or I don't know what the deal is. But Dan is not himself anymore. He's doing some crazy stuff. But I got to tell you, Alan, that was a top 25 moment in the swamp for me. To see Dan lose his mind. To then go into the tunnel. And I was I was watching him like, is he going to just walk in and play it like business? No. The fans are amping him up. He gets amped up. But when he comes back out for the completely unnecessary but totally awesome pump up the crowd at halftime moment. It was like it was like Street Fighter or some sort of brawl. And look, that's not that professional. You probably don't want your coach to do that. But sometimes I love that stuff. And I found myself on this occasion. I loved it. It felt very authentic. And for me, Alan, I felt like Dan Mullen is sort of not, he's not giving Trask what I feel like he should have been giving him, which is the... Oh my guy, he's kind of he's kind of been the this is my star pupil. He's really smart. I'm going to ride him hard. And I think for Trask today, wherever he's sitting, he knows that his coach ran across the field, almost got in a fight, caused a brawl, all on behalf of him getting hit late on a play in which Trask didn't really even think much of it. If Trask didn't feel like Dan Mullen had his back before putting in Emory Jones, putting in Edwardson, he's got to feel like he's got his back now. So it's a part of it that I just felt. That was like a, I think a big moment for the team. And that's why I love it. Having coached before, having seen locker rooms, I think this team this week, Alan, is closer than it's ever been. And I don't think Dan Mullen cares at all what the general public thinks right now, because I think he's got the chemistry at a peak level entering into the Georgia game. And a lot of that was, I think, what he did at that moment in the swamp. And again, it's either going to be foolish or it's going to be amazing. And I'm leaning towards it being something amazing for those guys in that clubhouse. Well, I think it worked out okay, but... I have very mixed thoughts and feelings about this. I think whatever a coach can do to endear himself to his own fan base, even if that goes against some of his reputation nationally, is probably good for him, right? So it feels like Dan lost control a little bit, though. Here's oh, he a, did. He here's a, yes. So here's the things I like. Sticking up for your player, getting into the refs about a late hit, I'm all for that. If you get fined because you're – chewing out the refs after your guy took a shot. All for that. Coming back out of the end, pumping up the fans, WWE style. That was fun. I've seen him get criticized. Who cares? That's great. You know? What I dislike is when our players get into it. Like those kind of rumbles, even if they're 
sometimes momentum swings. I dislike those things. You're putting your team in danger. You're putting your your own career in danger. Stuff could happen. Your suspensions heading into the Georgia week. The fact that we've only lost really Zach Carter for a first half is kind of amazing, right? We could have had ejection upon ejection coming out of that uh, with a ton of suspensions. So I feel like we escaped that. Um, so I don't know. I I feel like I'm okay with Dan Mullen being the most Dan Mullen possible. And he's, you know, he's a weird guy. He's awkward. He doesn't always read the room maybe the way that he's supposed to. He's a really good football coach. And if the Gator fans like feel like he's our weirdo football coach, that's probably the best case scenario. Now, again, he's got to navigate that national perception. He's has to speak with recruits, but I think, you know, endearing himself to Florida fans and they, there's a lot of cheers. People were stoked. There was a chance of, you know, Dan, the man or Dan, whatever. I people were very enthusiastic. So that has to count for something. Um, now when you lump this in with all the other things that have happened this year with the Corona stuff. So there, let me just talk about some people's talking points. Um, you know, Dan kind of infamously saying he wanted the swamp packed after the a and loss. We talked about that, how maybe that was him just being a little bit of a sore loser understand his frustration. Uh, and then on top of that, him getting the coronavirus. And I, I've also seen people saying, are you really blaming him for getting the coronavirus? I, mean, I think that's just a bad take too. to some of his voting comments, which I think were misconstrued, right? That he wanted to help the team vote. He thought doing a team organized activity was the best way to do that. And when you say it's an official day off, you can't actually help them do it. So I think people were criticizing him very unjustly for that. And then this, followed by him wearing a Darth Vader costume on the post-game press conference, which I think is weird, but kind of fun. In a vacuum, it probably means nothing. If we this is a game where we blow out Middle Tennessee State and none of these other things have happened, it gets zero media coverage. People laugh at it and move on. With the events of the day, it was probably a little mistimed. Uh comments on all those things put together, and then maybe how that's shaping Dan's reputation in that nationalize so first of all i feel like like we said before if i'm running a team i I, i'd brand it more towards my own image which wouldn't be demo and i certainly wouldn't be doing those things i'm a passionate fiery intense person but it manifests itself in a much different way but i'll tell you why i like the turn that this has taken in general so we've joked before, as most of you have, that Dan Mullen has a strong resemblance to one of my favorite Christmas movie characters, Cousin Eddie, which I just love at Christmas Vacation. I love it, you right? Do. And if you watch that movie, if you haven't, please watch it this Christmas. It's a gem. It, it gets better every single year. But Cousin Eddie is socially awkward, goofy, weird, bizarre, but he does something that totally endears you to him at the end of the movie. And I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it. It's too good. But he does something where everything you felt about Cousin Eddie flips around. And you're like, hey, you know what? This guy, this guy's a good guy. Dan Mullen is not cool. He's never been cool. He's always kind of been maybe the the awkward guy that was decent enough at sports. And now he's a big-time coach. But he doesn't have like that kind of factor. I think what's happening to Dan Mullen right now is is really good for Dan Mullen. Because sometimes, Alan, it's good to be the enemy if you're not really doing anything that's like really bad, again, he comes out and makes a sore loser comment. 
which all of us have made sore loser comments before. He shouldn't do it. You should know better, but he did it, right? And then he comes out wearing a Halloween costume on Halloween. He loses his cool and runs across the field. But these are like very minor type things. But what it's done, what it's done, Alan, is Dan Mullen now is like, he's become a little something. He's out there. And he's not doing it to get press attention. He's doing what he believes in. And that is, is charisma. That's charisma, whether it's weird like Cousin Eddie, but it is. And I think think watching Dan Mullen do a press conference in a Darth Vader suit was one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen a coach do. But for some reason, I just, I look at Dan and I think, you know what? This Dan Mullen, he's not Dan Mullen 1.0 anymore. He's morphed himself into 2.0. He's doing things I never thought he would do on offense, although it's not perfect. He's way leaning into it. And now he's got himself so far out there that he feels confident enough to go in front of the national news media after he incites a halftime brawl wearing a Darth Vader costume on Halloween. I mean, the confidence factor, that's not fake. No one can fake that kind of lunacy. Bravado. But I I think it works. I think I think it's real. And I think, again, take this from it. When your coach is not afraid to stand on his own, it's either the end of him because he's lost control, or it's the beginning of the next level to becoming your own person in a good way. And then you look back and say, you know what? In 2020, I probably did some things I would do differently, but it taught me to stand on my own away from having to be liked by everyone or viewed a certain way or whatever. And it made me Dan Mullen. And now I'm going to be the professional version of that. But I think this could be a launching pad. That's what I'm saying. I think this could be something for Dan, despite the bungles and the mishaps. Or, Alan, it could be his undoing. Yeah, that's... Which is very real, and it could be. He could go the other way, and he could become a cartoon character and a lunatic, and he could lose control of professional institutional control. He could look foolish. He's on a fine line. I just think knowing Dan Mullen enough, I don't think he's going to go in that direction. So I think this could become a crazy month for him that launches him maybe into the end of the movie Cousin Eddie. Well, it definitely raises his profile. I mean, I think Stuart Mandel or, uh, tweeted something about who would have foreseen Dan Mullen becoming the villain of the SEC or the heel in wrestling parlance, the guy that everyone hates or maybe loves to hate. So Steve Spurrier flourished in this role, right? He was the villain. We loved him. People hated him, but also kind of loved him. And some people really just hated him. I don't know if Dan is able to pull that off in the same way Steve is, of course, but a variant of that where he's wearing, he's, you know, like he said, just the charisma, it's off, but he makes it work. We'll see. He could trend in way the wrong direction. Now, if you win games and championships, you can be as weird as you want to be and your fan base is going to love you. That might, but now again, if that becomes tiresome, as soon as you stop winning, they will stop loving you. Uh, so we'll see. There, there's going to be a lot more Dan Mullen conversation as we move throughout this season. Any other any other thoughts on that? No, but but I think it's fun to discuss. It's fun that we're discussing it. And again, I think for a lot of you, you're probably surprised that I fall on this side of it. But I don't know. There's there's something about it. There's something about watching your coach wear a Darth Vader costume after inciting. And again, let's let's be clear, Alan. Just to put a bow on this one. 
Dan Mullen caused the halftime brawl. Indeed. There is no brawl of any kind. No one cares. Missouri is not a bad blood team. That was a cheap shot. Yes. Were they coached to do it? No way. They hadn't done it at all at any other point in time. And had he not done that, that never happens. So he did that. He caused that. That was wrong and silly. And yet again, we're going to see. I think we're going to see again. This week now for me, Allen becomes like, this is it. Like, this is year three. It's year three of the three-year test for me, right? We are now approaching the greatest test of Dan Mullen's career and one that very well may define his three-year test. And maybe I'm just subscribing to the madness because it's what we need. And here we are. And we're going to find out, but, but I think, I think this time next week, we're going to, we're going to be able to make some comments on Dan Mullen, the, the, the coach of Florida and what the future looks like. Wow. Well, he was fined $25,000, which I think he would pay gladly if it results in his team being more unified together, more focused, he would pay that every week. So again, I think Florida got off on the easy side here. Not the saying that we deserved anymore, but you never know when you get into these kind of messes. Okay. I like I we talked last week, just even briefly, blue helmets. When you saw them live, would you like it? No. No. I saw them <laughs> live and I didn't like it. And look, I, I'm into style. I like fashion. You can't put blue top and blue helmet together and make it look good very often. You can't take a primary color and do that. Like Alan, you can't wear blue pants and blue shoes. You look ridiculous. It just folds into it. It's like your leg becomes your foot. You have to have, you have to have some color difference, which is why most teams combinations don't have the same color helmet as their jerseys. So independently could have all, could all of the pieces worked? Sure. It could have, but as I said from the beginning, the blue helmet, blue top thing was not something that I was going to be like, man, we look good out there. And it was what it was. It's a uniform. I didn't spend more than a minute looking at it and thinking about it, but it wasn't my favorite combination. I spent probably more than a minute. I, I liked it. I love the retro stuff. I thought the stripes on the shoulders and the helmet looked really good together. I love the throwback stuff. Uh, I thought it was fun. If you're going to do fun stuff, this is the way to do it, in my opinion, and not swamp green, right? Cool. So, again, we're we're talking about jerseys here and helmets. Um but the stuff that gets the fans talking, the players excited, if it's done in a cool, classy way, uh, maybe, and again, it doesn't always have to be to my taste, but I, I liked it. I thought it was cool. I, I like the heritage moments for our team because we do have a heritage. And that's a good point. Again, maybe authenticity is how we close our opening thought segment is jerseys, coaching staffs, whatever. If there's an authentic reason to do it, that's what makes anything in life cool. If you're trying to be cool or you're trying to change your jerseys all the time because that is cool, you're not cool. It's not cool. Have some tie-in to your program. So I'm with you. I think if you're going to wind up doing jersey stuff, it needs to pull some theme from your program, whether it's a modern theme or it's a mid-century modern theme or it's a, you know, it's a throwback theme or whatever. It has to be tied in, not just this looked cool, so we did it. So I totally agree with you there. Okay, Alan, last but not least, before we get into the game analysis, it is time to give some love to the second ever, we've had a couple of them, but the second ever, and it's been a long time since we've had one, Gator Nation football podcast intern. Intern's way overqualified. His name is uh, Brandon Reddick. He played for the Gators, was a walk-on, and then he ran track in North Carolina. Very smart guy. And he messaged us a couple weeks back and said, hey, I really want to help out with the show. 
Uh, and we said, look, there's really nothing you can do. We get these messages time to time. But he was like, no, I'm going to help out. I want to do it. And I said, well, if you want to do something, I can send you all the stats and things that we have to compile and you can just input them. But you have a degree and you have a job. Certainly you don't want to do that. He goes, oh, no, I love football. I want to do it. I'm in. I'm down. I said, great. That's great. Well, we'll give you lots of love on the podcast. And he's such a humble guy. He says, well, you don't need to even mention me. I said, oh. You are going to get mentioned frequently. Yeah, Brandon so get Reddick. used to the name Brandon Reddick. You can you can find him on Twitter. You can follow him, etc. Well, he'll be thread throughout this podcast. We allowed him to, you know, hey, throw some commentary you have in there. We'll kind of pick a player you like, that kind of stuff. Uh, but thanks to him, he compiled our show notes today, which typically takes me like an hour or more of time. So hopefully in the future that saves me some time. Uh, but thank you. Thank you, Brandon. You're the man. We appreciate it. Yes. And uh, we, we certainly look forward to seeing, you know, how the rest of the season turns out and, and how you give me an hour of my, my weekend back, which is much appreciated. Yeah. Thanks for the help with the show, Brandon. Let's talk about the game. A really fun one, a really weird one. As we said, Gators win 41 to 17. So weirdly, we got kind of close. I got a little closer. Um, but I don't think we would have foreseen the game playing out the way that it did. I said the Gators would win 44 to 24. You picked 45 to 30. Really, the defense allowed way less than this. Seven of those points of the 17 were a pick six. Uh, seven points were a total garbage time touchdown. Really nice win for this Gator program. Um, your key to victory was the time of possession. Missouri's time of possession, really. And we held them to very little comparatively to what had been going on in the past. I talked about 30-yard pass plays. We had six of them. So that's huge. We knew we needed to challenge them if they were going to press us and take advantage of them. And we did so. We, did so. we actually had 10 16-yard pass plays, which is really nice. So good job by the offense. I think this could have been a bigger number if you play this game not coming off three weeks of COVID where the offense could have really torched them. And they you know did to the tune of 41 points, but it could have been even more. James... How good a win was this? Well, this is a great win. And, you know, it's funny. If you look at our keys, it makes sense how the score wound up. Because had you told me we're going to outpossess them by 10 minutes, and then in your case, you know, we're going to have six plays of 30-plus yards, 10 of plus, you know, 16-plus yards, that's a recipe for we probably smacked them good. That means we had a lot of plays. They didn't have that many plays. So it makes sense in context. The surprising part and what makes this a really good win, Alan, is that neither you nor I nor most people expected us to contain Missouri like we did. Uh, Steve Seitz had asked me on the way to the game on Saturday, what are the chances that Florida pitches a shutout today? And I was like, I mean, statistically zero is what I told him. And yet we kind of almost did it very for a long time. We were doing it. Now we had some help. Things were favorable. You know, they, they missed some opportunities there, but regardless, it still was there and I wouldn't have believed it. So, it's a great win whenever you're watching film, you're doing analysis, you think you see what's possible. So on one hand, it's not surprising. We've said on this podcast, the problem is not lack of talent. And sometimes it is. Sometimes you're just, you know what, the guy's not good enough. The problem on Florida's defense was scheme and positioning, right? Coaching, technique. So it's nice to see that go in our favor. And then again, we should beat Allen a Missouri team like this, even yeah. though we liked their scheme and their coaching vastly vastly undermanned talent wise compared to us they were missing 20 some odd guys coming into this game as well alan and they have a true freshman quarterback who ran the triple option in high school and although he's played very well 
this should be a game we won handily. And we did it, and that was surprising because we hadn't been doing that. So we turned a corner there as a team. That was fantastic. Uh, And obviously, again, a really good win. The most satisfying win by far of the young season thus far. Indeed. Okay, let's talk about Missouri. What we're, Let's talk about the offense first, of course, and then beginning with what Missouri tried to do to us, what we aimed at to doing to them, and how did that work out? So did Missouri do what you expected them to do as they put on film most weeks? Yeah, so their game plan to stop us was, like we said, they're going to play a lot of cover one man. That's what they did last year. They'll do it again this year. Uh, we obviously got their zone pretty good last year, but that they were still going to try to drop into those zones and to rob rob our routes as an exploitative strategy. They'll frequently blitz their linebacker that's essentially free, able to blitz, and that they'll play a lot of dime in obvious passing situations. All of those things were exactly true, Alan. Again, that's not a surprise. Missouri's not trying to surprise you with their defense, much like NFL teams are not trying to throw something totally different at you. Largely, it's playing sound football. They played over 65% of their passing snaps in man. of those were in cover one man. They played eight snaps in dime, almost all of those coming when Florida was in a third and obvious passing situation. Uh, And in those dime snaps, Alan, Florida only had a passer rating of 13.7 with an interception. So Missouri was very successful when they were able to get Florida into those third and seven, third and eight, third and nines, unlike other teams had been. That's largely because of how comfortable they are, again, playing man to man and then also having two safeties over the top. Uh, and they were getting to Kyle Trask early in the game, which we're going to talk about when we look at the O-line. That's the reason why they were so successful in dime is they were able to actually generate a pass rush. To counter that, Alan, we said that our game plan, of course, was Missouri does lack an effective pass rush, but they're great against the run. Uh, they had held several teams to, to pretty much their season lows, but that we needed to win our man-to-man matchups. And this was an excellent time for Dan 2.0 to shine, really showcasing a variety of ways to attack man. What happened? Well, for the first quarter and a half, you would have thought Dan 1.0 was calling the plays. There were a lot of very curious play calls, I thought, from the stands, which turned out to be just as curious when you watch them on film. And then once we got to that five-minute mark in the second quarter, we flipped the script. And and as you can see on my film breakdown on YouTube, the plays became much better, very much 2.0 stuff, not at all what we were doing last year against man. And that that's what largely led to a lot of our success. Uh, so that was that was very helpful. I do want to make one note here, Alan, and this is something we should pause and talk about. So much amongst football fans has talked about about bland play calling, and we've covered it before. Sort of like you're going to save your best play calls for your future opponent, or we didn't get to practice a lot, so we were bland on offense, and you know yada yada yada. The reality is in football, it's not about being bland or not bland. It's just simply positioning your chess pieces. There's nothing magical about it. If you know a team is going to play you in man, you put plays in the playbook that allow you to run the things we talk about. Bunch sets, rubs, crossers. There's nothing special about that either. A play is successful when it's used against the right defense. That's it. So no, I don't think it was bland play calling in the first quarter and a half because we hadn't practiced I'm not frankly sure what Florida thought Missouri was going to do, but I think we were surprised in the red zone by how Missouri chose to defend us. That's the easiest narrative. As we were driving down the field, no problem. We get to the red zone, we were surprised. And in the red zone, Missouri was playing a lot of cover to man, which I think surprised us. They're basically daring us to run the football, which we talked about in the pod, they'd probably do. And we ran some screens into those that weren't very wise and some other things, but... 
in essence, Alan, it was a tale of two entirely different games, the first quarter and a half and the rest of the game. Uh, and that's what led to the difference. So it was Dan one to Dan two. I'm not really sure why we were doing some of the things we we did. Like we said, we were making it harder on ourselves, but it was great to see that we flipped that script because last season we did not have that in our toolkit. And that's what led to sort of the full game grinded out win. Uh, whereas this season we were able to utilize some very basic concepts to to spring us free and get big plays down the field rather easily. And that's yeah. that's a testament to a different philosophy. That's evidence of how Dan is different this year than he was last year. Yeah, it's, you know, bland is like you're not going to show certain wrinkles. You're not going to do trick plays. We were just not executing some of our base strategy stuff. Now, again, if you aren't able to practice all weekend, you don't ever run bunch sets and the situation would call for it, then you're not going to run bunch sets, right? So that's not bland. That's just lack of preparation ability. Yeah, it was. It really was the red zone. And again, you look at the score. We kick a couple field goals. If those are touchdowns, the game, the the feel of the game look is very different. Um, I do think at the beginning we were. I don't like this rusty. I think this is overrated. Often, these guys practice, but they they looked out of sorts. They looked like they hadn't played much in a couple weeks. Dan made a note that the offensive line hadn't really practiced together until I think like Tuesday of game week after being off for weeks. I think that showed up. They started to shore that up a little bit. They they did not play well early on. Trask had no time. Uh, on the touchdown pass to Tony at the end of the half, I think we remarked, that's the first time it looked like he had a clean pocket. He was able to look off the safety. Tony made a great cut. Touchdown. Right? I feel like Trask was moving out of the pocket and not in a... Bo Nix, I felt a slight bit, slight bit of pressure, and I'm rolling out. Like he was having to move, he was climbing well. He wasn't, it wasn't perfect, but they were covering well. We were not in the right, like you said, the right kinds of plays to really help him. Now again, I think we could have been successful with those plays if we have enough time. Trask is still going to beat you, um, but we weren't optimized certainly in the first half. And I don't know, maybe the coaches were a little rusty too. How much would you attribute it? to the slow start to rust, or maybe it just was, that's a mirage. We just weren't calling the right kinds of plays. Both. Certainly the rust is real. First of all, it's one of the reasons why, you know, we rail on this podcast about the layoff, the layoff between the end of the season and, and the championship game. Typically it's too long. Now this season will be interesting, Alan, because yeah, it will be closer. the shortest it's been, but any player would talk about this. If you start to take more than two weeks off, two weeks is about the max you could take. And that's assuming you're practicing all the time you are not the same it takes you some time to get back into game speed and that's clearly what was happening to florida there's no doubt about it coupled with like you mentioned some early pressures there were a lot of hurries by missouri in the first quarter and a half which were taking trask off the spot we were not able to take that extra quarter second we needed to either get ourselves open against their man coverage or have trask be able to even read the full field uh, so it's a combination of both. It was a combination of both. I think that's one reason why you saw Dan Mullen put so many what looked to be scripted screenplays in the game. Yeah. Simple, safe throws, easy to execute. But those plays are just the wrong kind of plays against a team that's playing the way Missouri played against us. And that hurt us in the red zone bad. That would be first and 10 to second and 12. And now you're in trouble. Because if you can't get to third and six or seven, Missouri is a tough team to convert third and long on. So I think it was both is the real simple answer to that question. Uh, but most importantly, again, it's not concerning. If I'm coaching in that game, I feel like my offense is going to get it going 
And it takes both, let's call some more aggressive plays. Let's get some better blocking. Let's trust that we're going to break down any team that plays us that heavily in man. And we did. And Tony, of course, was a large reason why we were able to do that. Uh, but the stats here for the results, right? Their game plan, our game plan. What are the results? Well, we talked about the slow start, fast finish. We had six points in the first five drives. Missouri had seven. So they're beating us seven to six solely because of our offense. And then we scored touchdowns on five of the next six drives. In the game, we had 25 first downs. We were just four of 13 on third down, most of those coming in those first five drives. Right. The rest was pretty solid. We ran 71 plays. It's a marked increase above what we had been running. We had 514 yards, 345 passing, 169 rushing. That's the surprise stat of the game, the way we ran the ball against Missouri, especially with Trask yeah. running the ball against our leading, Missouri. Our leading rusher. Right. We still are averaging an incredible 9.6 almost every game yards a pass, speaking to Trask's efficiency on attacking all sorts of types of defenses. Don't sleep on the fact now that Trask has beaten every type of defense this season you could possibly run already. He's faced all sorts of different defensive coordinators, and he's come out you know, glowing in all of them. Pro Football Focus will probably find a way to twist that against him, but here on the pod, we know the truth. Uh, 4.8 yards a carry, Allen. That's unreal against Missouri's defense. That's, that, is, that is a super surprising stat. 33 minutes time possession. We're 50% passing, 50% rushing, so we finished the day balanced. I want to ask you this. How yeah. surprised were you with that 4.8 yards a carry? It is not often that Florida has rushed the ball with that kind of proficiency. Yeah, I think it's a little mirage honestly. I think it's good. I'm happy that that number is there. Some of those are those longer Trask runs, which that we're catching them. We saw something, certainly, that if we do this, they are not going to be ready for it. Some good running by Pierce. I, I liked him in this game. I thought he looked really effective. But the running backs really did a lot of damage catching the ball out of the backfield. And some of this rushing yardage, um, especially the you know percentage of passing versus rushing is late game. Like we're actually way up and we're running the ball almost exclusively on, on some of these drives. Uh, you got some good runs from Emory, a decent run from Anthony Richardson in here. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think my problem is when we needed to do it early on, we maybe weren't able to do it when it counted. So I, I think it's a positive. I I don't want to put too much stock in it because I don't think if we had to line it up and run it that we necessarily could at the level of effect, effectiveness we would need to against an elite team. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little a little counter to that and do say it. You that, can be wrong to say that you're right and then then you're <laughs> not wrong. It's a, it's an opinion, but you're. You're, there's an element here. So one, Trask is the leading rusher in the entire game. Yeah. Both sides. So that's clearly not going to be a hallmark rushing day. Uh, but here's the key. So we broke this down again on the YouTube film session. Definitely check this out. It's fascinating. But in the second half, and I'll go ahead and put this out here now before we even get to the what did we do right. The second half, the third quarter especially, was the best Dan Mullen offensive line performance that we have seen on film since we've evaluated Dan Mullen O-lines. There are some some plays where the blocking is phenomenal. And again, Missouri was the number one rushing defense. And we were manhandling them. Now, they're undersized. They're not Georgia. But for us, we have been struggle McGee against anybody yeah, that has anemic, a good run Regardless, defense. certainly. But what we did, what we did on those Trask runs was old school, Dan Mullen 1.0, Tim Tebow type stuff, where your running back is lined up next to Trask. And we have not showed this in a long time since Trask has been quarterback really at all. 
And because Missouri's playing cover one, they don't they don't have the same luxury other teams do of having someone else off the line of scrimmage. So it adds it adds this wrinkle to be advantageous. When you're covering a team that's going to wind up doing a zone read, and the zone read is the play you see on every single Saturday now where the quarterback takes the ball and fakes a handoff to the running back or gives the ball to the running back based upon a read he's making. The quarterback is going to read one defensive end um, and decide whether he's going to keep it or not, right? So most teams, Alan, they counter this by bringing the unblocked man on the edge across the formation to tackle either where the running back is running to or where the quarterback is running to, one or the other. So Florida obviously knew on film that Missouri always brings their free rusher from the side the running back is running to. So Alan, if I'm the quarterback and you're the running back and I hand you the ball and you're running from my right to my left, then their defender is going to come from my left, right? And that's the unblocked defender. They're basically going to try to take the run away because they don't respect Trask as running. What Florida did instead was they lined up Pierce to the right of Trask. And then when the ball was snapped, Pierce just went and blocked the defensive end that's assigned to holding the edge for Trask, the guy that Trask would read. And that leaves a free defender coming from the left side that's completely unable to get all the way across the formation into where Trask is running. And there's no one else to help. It effectively makes it 11 on 10. That's a staple of the Urban Meyer 1.0 offense. It's what Tim Tebow did so well. You basically give yourself a plus one number advantage. Now, again, there's ways to counter that, but Missouri was not expecting Kyle Trask, obviously, to do that. Now, you can rest assured that Florida will absolutely put a wrinkle into this for the Georgia game. Georgia's now seen it. They know it's there. Florida can use this to create a play wrinkle, whether it be a play action or something interesting off of this. It's going to keep Georgia more honest, but they were in the same play twice in a row, and that was absolutely beautiful. But perhaps most importantly, Alan, the blocking play of Dan Mullen's tenure occurred on the jet sweep handoff to Kadarius Tony, It was a thing of beauty involving Stone Forsyth, our left tackle, uh, Kyle Pitts, and then Pierce. So you have a running back, a tight end, and a left tackle all swinging out and blocking in a way that would make Vince Lombardi happy. A simple play, sealing the edge. Kyle Trask, as, as people on Twitter have noted from our little Easter egg in the, in the podcast, is celebrating before Tony's anywhere near the end zone because he knows they've sealed the edge. And that, to me, cemented the best quarter of of offensive line play in the Dan Mullen era. And that is very, very encouraging. Do I think we can do that against Alabama and the best teams in the SEC? No, but huge progress based on film there. The film doesn't lie. We were not capable of this against any opponent. And Missouri, again, is a good run defense. So really good stuff for Florida's offensive line, especially in the run-blocking area, even if we were using some 1.0 principles to get a numerical advantage. So I definitely agree with you there that I was impressed by the blocking. Uh, Even some of those schematic advantages with a running quarterback don't work if they're going to slip through the line and tackle you two yards in the backfield. And that Tony play is a good example of blocking well and your playmakers executing on a high level and doing something. So the reason I mentioned that that yards per carry is a little bit of a mirage is that uh, you know, you're, some of those Trask runs, some of those things, I, that yards per carry would indicate that you are doing an excellent job of running the ball when you want to. And we were kind of tricking our way into it. Uh, I am encouraged by the offensive line play in the run blocking area. I, I don't know if we can, like you said, replicate that in, against our better opponents, but we have to be able to at least run the ball credibly. And if we can... That bodes really well for how dangerous this offense can become. So good things there. 
the yards per carry take a little bit with a grain of salt there because we did some things to manufacture. And again, with Kyle Trask being your leading runner rusher, that doesn't that means you weren't like letting Damian Pierce just feast and he wasn't running the ball for seven yards a pop kind of a thing. So good good things in there, even if I'm not staking all my or putting all my weight on that yards per carry. Okay, anything else that we want to talk about before we just what else did we do right? What else did you want to say? Yeah, let's just go right into what we did right. So obviously we remained really patient when we were struggling in the beginning of the game. Great offenses are not going to panic. They just recognize next possession. Let's keep going out there. Let's keep executing. Let's use the momentum the defense gave us, which they did. And then they put the knockout punch in there right at the end of the second quarter. So it went from a highly contested close game to a game that was essentially over. And then once we got the ball rolling, obviously we had excellent execution, a much better scheme, some really fun highlight plays. Uh, Kadarius Tony putting himself all over all over everyone's social media feeds out there. We ran the ball, of course, surprisingly well, as we mentioned. We just talked about the offensive line really hitting a high point under itself. Uh, And all in all, when your offense is running really well, Alan, it's what you just said. Your playmakers, the guys in space that can do damage, actually do damage. Because you can have the greatest playmaker in the world, but if your offense can't get him into space or you can't block it off for him, football's a team sport. They can't do anything. So when you start to see guys like Tony do really well, that's a bonus. Also, it's another game here where Kyle Pitts, he wasn't out of the game, but he certainly wasn't dominating the game. Now, he drew a lot of attention from Missouri. He's a big reason why Tony gets to have the days that he's having. His teams continue to play Tony straight up man-to-man, and they pay way more attention to Kyle Pitts. So it, it's it's the the poison pill we talked about right at the beginning of the year. It's what actually, we actually talked about last year. If Tony could emerge, and obviously Tony continues, Allen, his emergence as just a, an incredible progression from a guy who was nowhere near a complete football player to a guy now that you better believe NFL teams are going to be intrigued by for so many reasons. He's become a multifaceted, versatile player. So really great stuff from him. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of a smaller version of LaVishka Chenault, who's playing for the Jaguars, who got drafted in the second round, despite not a ton of production and a little bit of injury history, kind of profiles similarly. But yes, let me talk about Tony for a second. I've been so thoroughly pleased with him. For the things that you mentioned, his route running, his commitment to doing some of the smaller things that the coaching staff has been trying to get him to do to play a little bit more within the team structure. So some of his reverses and things like that aren't putting the team at uh, a disadvantage. And he's incredible. This is funny. If you just showed his like highlights, which are spread over a long time, and there's a lot of time where he's hurt or maybe they're coming like once every other game, but just his little 30-second highlight reel, you would think he's the best Gator football player of all time. His highlights stack up against anybody. It's probably more exciting than anybody's, even though he's clearly not the best Gator player ever. His highlight package is unreal. The stuff he's able to do and put on film is crazy. So, again, with you, people are going to have to take note because he's been able to do this consistently and within the framework of the offense. Um, so, yes, big plus for him. Liked him a lot. You know, I what else did we do right? I liked that what you said about staying patient. It never seemed like we were panicking out there. That's hard to do when you've been scuffling and this is a big game and you feel like your season's on the line. I wanted to give a little hat tip to that as well. Um, and then when we were moving, they, we really put them in a bind down the field. Uh, they had 
you know, a tough time dealing with Tony in particular, but with the offense was a scheme overall. Like we were able to get almost everything we wanted once we got things going. I love the bunch sets. I thought those did really well. Our backside of the backfield, Malik Davis catching a ball, Damian Beers catching a ball. They were really dangerous in space. So uh, that was good to see because that's going to be a place where we can really take advantage of other teams that they have to match up down the field. There's a couple times where Trash, I don't think he even looked at what was happening downfield because he looked right in front of them and no one took Pierce. And Pierce took a two-yard pass and turned it into a 30-yard gain. So good job by them uh, recognizing what's immediately in front of them and being able to take big chunks of yardage from that. Do you want to talk about Trask himself? Yeah, Trask was 21 for 36, 345 yards, four touchdowns, one pick, which we're going to talk about. Uh, the game's leading rusher for 47 yards rushing, so almost 400 total yards there. Allen accounted for by him, and he hits 18 touchdown passes through four games, which is the fastest to that mark in SEC history. He did that with far fewer plays than most other quarterbacks have had or have had. In fact, if you look at Trask, he's in top three for really all the nation's quarterbacks, despite having fewer plays than most of them. And he's done that against an all-SEC schedule. All-SEC slate. So really amazing stuff from him. And again, we're not surprised here at this podcast. We have been all over Trask. Uh, I have to say, though, like we said, we're going to be wrong plenty in the future, and we will admit it. Uh, but but Trask, <laughs> yes. you know, when we came out early on in that Kentucky or Tennessee game, Alan and I said, hey, look, the technical skills this guy is displaying, he can replicate them. Uh, his His progression continues to be remarkable with how – fast he learns these concepts i mean it's seemingly like fool him once and then it will never happen again truly truly incredible stuff so let's talk about two things in this game one his low completion percentage so he's only you know 21 for 36 normally he's up in the mid 70s right low 70s when you play against a team that plays a lot of man your completion percentage will drop but typically your yards per completion will go up and he was not helped by a couple of of third down drops that were there also the the protection lack of protection that we had and a lot of throwaways that he had to a lot of lot of issues there so talk about the lack of protection for a second and this is why film study is so great it's why us thankfully having an inside source with access to the all 22 that i get asked this question all the time no it's not publicly available unfortunately there's no way for us to get it to you tells you the truth of what happened so i got a lot of text messages oh man what was trash doing on that interception nobody was open well it turns out that's not true at all in fact Kadarius Tony was wide open on a seam go route. I mean, he was gone. And Trask is going to deliver him the ball for a touchdown. Except, unfortunately, a guy who gets mentioned a lot on this podcast for the wrong reasons, DeLance, messes up the zone blocking scheme. You can see again on our film breakdown, there's, no a, one. there's a shot of him uh, that Tyler Rummery actually sent to our thread, which is funny because when I put it in, I thought some people would have fun looking at that, where he's just blocking no one. And he gets confused, and again, he's played too much for a simple stunt to mess him up like that. Reese tries to save the day, doesn't. Trask gets hit as he's throwing the ball. But if DeLance does what he should, and we were we were in a good number situation there on the O-line, it was not a scenario where they brought more, Allen, than we couldn't block. So we should block Just a free that rusher up. that you need to pick up. We should block that up. It's a very normal circumstance. Don't do it. It turns into a pick six. And, and the thing is, against Missouri, that winds up being okay, but against Alabama or Georgia or Clemson, or if we aspire to be a playoff team, that play may may change your entire game. And that's it. You have to make those plays. So the, here's the good news. What am I saying this for? Trask has two interceptions on the season, right? 
You want your quarterback's interceptions to be ridiculous like that. That's a touchdown pass to Tony. And instead it's a pick because his right tackle blows it for him. But those are the kind of picks you want your quarterback to make because that's not his fault. It's the proper read, the proper timing. It's going to be a touchdown. Uh, so again, it's really comforting when you see on the film. Do you, oh, do you that's think you should great. have just eaten the sack there? No, there was no way. In fact, because if you look at it, it was it was nice. It's a nice stunt by Missouri. But if you're Trask, as he's loading up, he's clean, and then the pressure comes really inside on the a gap. So from his viewpoint, he's good. Loads up, gets ready to throw. Arm starts moving, and guys hitting him. So there was really no way to pick that up as a quarterback. That wasn't like he was late to say, "Ooh, I'm going to take a shot here." Everything was on time and it got there just at the right time. So just a bad situation that happens in football. But again, if you're a coach, you love that kind of interception because your quarterback is making the right decision, not forcing anything, not doing anything silly. Uh, That part's great. Let's transition then to where do we struggle? Well, of course, we've talked about all these things, right? But primarily our continued struggle, and this one's going to carry us into the Georgia game, is we obviously have a serious issue with the Lancet right tackle. He is a chronic weakness on this offensive line the left side of our line Allen, is as good as it's been under mullen times like two what we have right now with guraj and stone forsyth and let's give it up for stone forsyth he still occasionally can be run past but what he's putting on film these past few games is much better problem for him is he hasn't faced the guys that can get him yet right the elite talents can run past him but he's up to his game garage looks really solid at left guard and heggy at center heggy at center has been rock solid so you're seeing a left side of the line that's very trustworthy, minus the occasional stone foresight move. But you're seeing this right side where Reese can be had, but DeLance really gets had. That is a serious weakness for this football team right now. If we could just get Ethan White back, Allen, this becomes different, I think, at least on paper. Uh, but for now, that's where we're struggling. We did struggle, obviously, in that dime situation. That's going to carry over to Georgia because Georgia will play. A lot of the same scenarios and obvious passing downs, they will play a dime. They will play cover two man. It's their favorite defense against us. So that's something to watch as we look coming into this week. But all in all, I loved how the offense went from slow, frustrating start coming off all these weeks from COVID, coming off a loss from AM to morphing into this. You couldn't have a higher confidence surge. You dealt with adversity. You didn't play well. And here's here's a nice little bonus, Alan. Missouri plays defense very similarly to Georgia. Now, Georgia's not quite as in-your-face press man, but it's another team that's going to challenge you in the passing department, and we just got a bunch of great reps against them. So a lot to be happy with despite the obvious struggles that we had. Yeah, it's unfortunate with the Delance stuff because I think that is really an anchor for us right now. And I would have to wonder if we had a similar situation we were able to practice a little bit more whether they would have made a shift offensively. Obviously, you know, as Mullen said, if you can't practice with your, even your base offensive line, it's a big chance to take the insert new guys into that moment without being able to rep them and pra- and see them in practice. So I don't know. Normally we would have had an off week before Georgia and maybe you would have seen a, a lineup change, but I don't know if we're going to be able to pull the trigger on that. Ethan White being healthy would obviously be helpful, but I don't know if the coaching staff is going to, be willing to make an entire lineup change flip on the eve of your biggest game of the year. That's that's a ballsy, ballsy move. When we're talking about lineup change, you're moving Forsyth to right tackle, Garage to left tackle, and eliminating DeLance from the lineup. That Maybe they would do that. That's super ballsy. I don't know if they will. 
Yeah, it depends on it, whether the reports on Ethan White were true right sure. before the season. If he was that dominant, you'd definitely do it. But a, a great, great question to be raised, and that's why things are not so easy, even if, again, on paper, you say, oh, well, the output is there. So, of course, ways to improve, improve the right side of the line. I think it'd be worth Can the I ask risk. you real quick, in the struggle department, um, let me talk about Trevon Grimes a little bit. So he's a guy... Size, speed, if you want to think about, you know, winning those kind of matchups, that he, this is a place where maybe you could take advantage. And he, and he had a few catches. He had a couple big catches, but his mirror number eight is, well, I guess this doesn't have to do with Grimes, who had the pick six, seemingly held his own, now was also holding Grimes quite a bit. Were you disappointed in the fact that Grimes wasn't able to get as much separation or wasn't uh, as productive in this particular scheme? It has been disappointing. Our wide receivers in general have been disappointing with getting enough separation. Now, we've said on the podcast before, a lot of this does have to do with how teams have been playing us. But against Missouri, that was not the case. Against Missouri, they were they were willing to let the wide receivers, especially on the outside, go man-to-man with no safety help. And this was a game that obviously in the game plan, we thought Grimes would be able to win his matchup. Now, look, there was a tremendous amount of holding going on against Grimes that was rarely called, which affects the psyche of the receiver. It also affects, obviously, you know, really the, the quarterback-receiver uh, relationship in a game like this. But it doesn't matter. Grimes is not getting out of his, his routes well enough. He's way too fast to not be gaining more separation. Uh, and to me, that comes down to technique, whether he struggles in the arm-fighting department or Allen, he struggles to come out of his breaks clean enough right, where, he's, where, he's, where, he's, where he's losing his defender enough with the moves that he's making. Um, but certainly, if you imagine a guy like Van Jefferson, who's not as explosive uh, as Grimes against teams playing man-to-man like they are this year against us, forget about it. They're going to be Nobody five yards can off cover of him. Van Jefferson. So mainly it's technique and route running. No, I'm just not sure. I'm not. This is where it's tricky on film. You can look at a receiver and you can kind of watch their steps and you can see who's exploding and not exploding. But and, and Grimes obviously is not getting a lot of separation. That's just the bottom line. He's not separating from his man a lot. Uh, and that is disappointing, Allen, for us. He's still useful, obviously. He's still the weapon. Uh, but yeah, I think in this game, we would have wanted to have seen more from him. He certainly had a, on paper, a decided talent edge. And he was really unable, for the most part, to do much with that. So something to look out for. Again, some of the pressure, I think, hurts this. You know, a little more time for him would have been helpful. Also, him having to break off his routes. There's there's some things where I don't want to totally just be like, oh, he sucked. But this is a game I wanted to see him shine. He didn't really shine in this game. Something to look at moving forward. Um, okay, anything else to make an impression on you? Yeah, we, yeah, I would say that the this is funny. So from from of course from BR, we're talking about the nickname for for Brandon, but for now, yeah, BR, BR? Reddick okay. or like JJ B Red, the yeah, the other JJ Reddick. I don't know. He went to North well, Carolina, not Duke. We're gonna think of something great. But uh, intern intern Brandon has on here the awful camera crew, which of course maybe you guys related to because we weren't watching on TV. So hopefully that's a thing. And and the officiating did seem to be quite bad. Uh, lots of there's bizarre, a line judge who was making some very strange calls over and over again, and and just just some stuff going down that the substitution you never see that in college football when they actually were like whoops we accidentally didn't give the team enough <laughs> time to substitute like what is this like pee wee football I mean that that's bizarre so that was that was weak it made an impression in the wrong way but 
A lot to love on the offense, Alan. I think they're going to come into the Georgia game feeling very good about themselves. Full of confidence, healthy, ready to roll. COVID issues passed us. Obviously, Trask had COVID. I'm sure all of you know that now. So I think, if anything, they're probably feeling like a million bucks entering into the matchup this weekend. So they're in a good place. That is good. Unlike, yes, that broadcast team, which I rewatched a little bit with my wife uh, because she didn't get to see the game because on the SEC alternate network, which I guess we didn't have. Yeah, half the time the camera did not pan down the field, so you didn't know who caught the ball or what happened. You just see the ball on the ground or something. Uh, I don't know if this is ESPN's, like, D team. It's probably their, like, L team. You know, they were way down the list, so a lot of problems for them. Uh, lots of funny commentary on the the commentators themselves not being up to par either. Okay. Offense, at times, predictably good, despite a slow start. Really, the big storyline here is the defense. Let's talk about what we did well, what we didn't do well, what we actually did change, and what we didn't. We've we've uh, uh, previewed this a lot. The Florida defense. Okay, what was Missouri trying to do, and what did we do to stop them? So we knew Missouri was going to use pre-snap motion, which they did. A lot of motion across. Are you in man? Chases across the field. They wanted to run east-west offense. They wanted to run hitch routes. Lots of routes coming back to the quarterback. Lots of underneath routes. Basilak could run, so maybe he's going to wind up running some. But primarily, the main game plan, right, Allen, was that more than half their passes are five yards and less. They rarely throw the ball down the field, and they want to attack the middle of the field. So for them, if you're grading Missouri, were they able to accomplish that? Well, they missed a field goal and should have had a touchdown and a deep pass, but outside of that, basically generated nothing. Had just 89 yards of passing entering into the fourth quarter, which tells you automatically that our game plan obviously won out to theirs. And what was ours? Well, we had said we should play sound with regards to numbers. Check. For the first time in a long time, Allen, on almost every snap, there was no obvious numbers problem, which was a huge win in and of itself. Don't blow coverages, which we did a couple of times, and we escaped, and we should have gotten punished more, for sure. Uh, play closer to the line of scrimmage to disrupt those underneath routes. Check. We did that way more than we've seen. And force Missouri to try to beat us over the top into tighter windows. Check. They had opportunities. They hit one for sure. Missed a couple others. Right thing there. And again, perhaps most importantly, as far as what players could control, the D-line needed to stay in their gaps. They had to stay in their gaps, and they did it extremely well, especially after the first quarter. They were almost perfect at it. And then occasionally use a zone to wind up confusing the young quarterback and try to rob some routes, try to get a few interceptions. So what do we think was going to happen? Well, I said probably not a whole lot of that. Obviously, between our podcast, Allen and Game Time, we learned that Florida had a lot of guys missing. My favorite, Chester Kimborough was out, right? You had Marco Wilson out. You had Steiner out. Sean um, Davis out. You had Sean Davis out, which is a huge loss. So we're, we were like skeleton crewing the defense. So what do we do? Well, we basically did that. Again, key takeaways here. Sound with numbers, closer to the line of scrimmage, and gap control. Those are your three big takeaways from what Florida did better. Uh, we did use a lot of four linebackers, which is the best I think we've performed running what you would consider to be a base nickel personnel for a large part of the game. Uh, didn't play a single snap and dime, which is not shocking given that we, again, only had six total DBs. So at some point in time, you're marching out your whole entire secondary and you have no one left if they get injured or what the case may be. Here's the part, Alan, that may surprise a lot of you. 
I saw a lot of this commentary. I did not directly talk about it on the film because, of course, we have to save things for the pod. Florida played guess how many snaps and man. A lot of you are thinking half the snaps, more than half the snaps. It seems like every play we played man. Eight snaps and man. And only five in the first three quarters when the game was basically decided. It was, however, our best defense by far, holding them to a passer rating of 48 versus our zone snaps where they had a passer rating of 66. Neither of those are, are good, obviously, uh, for, the, for the opposing quarterback. But we did not play a lot of man. Does that surprise you? It does a little bit, considering the way we're aligned pre-snap, playing one safety a little higher, moving Rashad Torrance down low. We did this for a lot of the game, like you mentioned, with four linebackers, two of them around the line of scrimmage. So what were we doing if we weren't playing man? That's a great question. We played a lot of zone, not surprisingly. In fact, we played a ton of Tampa 2 zone. Now, this is important, Alan. This is the part that gets a little nuanced with when you're looking at defenses. So you can play a zone defense, but we could have our corners playing man the entire game. Then it would still be a zone. Why is that? Because our underneath defenders, linebackers, our strong safety, whoever else we decide to put there is in a zone and not in man. So that's really crucial to understand. Uh, So Florida did not play, again, as many snaps as you may have thought, in true man where everybody was locked up in man. Now, if you check out my film study, of course, I highlighted a lot of them where we did play man because I tend to think that was a great defense against Missouri. And so I wanted to show you what that looked like. Uh, But the one thing we did was when we did play zone, Alan, we were not playing off man zone as frequently. So again, second concept to really take into account here. Just because we have a player very close to the line of scrimmage does not mean that they're not playing a zone. You can't just look at the players and say, well, they're all standing seven yards off the ball. We must be playing zone. You can say you're playing soft, uh, but you could be playing man or zone. You have to wait to see what happens after the ball is snapped. So Florida did not play a lot of man. So if you thought we just locked them down and played a lot of man across the board, not true. Our corners did play a lot of man. That's true. That happened. And obviously we were rotating our strong safeties and safeties down quite a bit. And as we mentioned, we did in fact play quite a bit of zone. So if Grantham were on this very podcast, he would say, well, actually we still played about the same zone to man ratio we always do. And that would be correct. But we definitely did it, as we've already mentioned on the top of the show, Alan, with a different style. Passing men off, safety to strong safety, um, keeping our corners locked in man a lot longer, actually pressing on the line of scrimmage with our corners frequently throughout most of that game. Elam was almost always pressed up right on his guy. So you had a a shift with how you were going to approach defense. And again, this is why football is a great game. It's not just man or zone. There's all sorts of different things you can be doing. Uh, But take, take home this. It was a very different style of zone defense we played before. Our corners were playing a lot more man on their own in general. And we were far more aggressive bringing a strong safety into the box and or to cover than we have been in really all of Grantham's tenure running what functionally was much more of a of one high safety even if technically we were in something like a Tampa 2 and we were choosing to have our safety come play a different position. So lastly and without getting too nuanced in an audio format, you could play a zone defense, but there's like 25 different ways to play a cover 3. And you could have your safeties do all sorts of kooky things where technically it's still a cover 3, 
But for my purposes, and when I talk about things, the real question is how many players do you have far away from the ball? That's one of the easiest ways to look at how safe you're playing on defense. And this was the biggest change for Florida Allen. Florida rarely had more than one guy far away from the ball, which is much better. Again, whether you're running a cover three or a cover two or a cover four, if your players are not all 25 yards away from the ball, like we've seen on previous film studies, you're having more guys in the action, so to speak, which is exactly what we should have done against the team that ran underneath route. So take all of that with you. And again, check out the film study on YouTube if you want to see those things visually. But there's your fun nugget from our defense. So now you can tell your friends, actually, we didn't play a lot of man defense. Yeah, and also we were out of our preferred nickel. We were playing with four defensive backs almost the entire game. Um, As you said, a a few variants here and there. But uh, a lot of what would amount to a five-man front, too, with three defensive linemen and, you know, kind of the traditional buck guy along the line and then bringing up another guy close to the line of scrimmage as well. I thought that helped us in our run fits. I thought that helped us, uh, you know, put a decent amount of pressure on Bazelak. We got much better results from that than how we've been playing with our nickel, who wasn't really accomplishing what we wanted to in the first place. And I think part of that is Jeremiah Moon being a very versatile player. Now you heard me rail against versatility. Uh, versatility can be a good thing. And Moon can cover. He can be decent against the run. And he can be aggressive towards the ball. He took some really good angles, had some good sacks, had some good tackles along the along line of scrimmage. You didn't see a guy like David Reese, who I think could be a very productive player. I'm talking about the younger David Reese, But is definitely like, where does this guy play? Is he a buck? Is he a linebacker? Is he some, I don't know what he is. He's not doing it very well, whatever he's doing. Um, And the guys, you know, once Trey Dean went out of the game, the the coaches, I think, were forced to play with Brad Stewart back at safety. He's not playing the star anymore and with Rashad Torrance. Now, again, you saw some guys. We do rotate guys in, right? But that was the look we, we were primarily in for a lot of the game. And that was, that's thankfully... That's what's crazy, Alan, is, is like we've talked about with this coaching staff. Why is it that we have to be forced into doing things that, that again, I can watch on film and other people that, that hopefully have some football acumen can watch on film and say, well, it's clear that these guys are better at this than who we're playing. Why are we doing this? And look, I'll be the first to say Brad Stewart is not the guy that you want as your free safety. Yeah. Now you put Sean Davis there. That defense takes a step up. We've been begging for Sean Davis to be the guy that's the center fielder on this team and to bring somebody else down. Please do it. Please. And don't put Brad Stewart at star. That's not where he should be either. Brad Stewart should be playing the strong safety role. Where Torrance was. Where Torrance was. Because that's going to wind up being the fourth or sometimes the fifth best receiving option for a team where Brad Stewart can cover that guy. But when you're putting Brad Stewart in the nickel, you're often asking him to cover their most dangerous slot receiver. He is not good at that. He's not good at that. So this was a much better alignment of of talent and personnel. And it was because, as you mentioned, we pretty much were forced to do it. Still not what I would start if we have our full complement of choices, but it worked so much better. And again, Alan, if you're an athletic defense like Florida is, and you have guys who can play man-to-man, and we have guys in the secondary that have size, why are we playing so far away from the ball, especially if we can't play zone? So I just thought, like we said, your 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 mention of the five on the line, uh, which we hadn't talked about yet, which was crucial. 
Uh, obviously, mainly how we were lined up in the front seven, Allen, was the the biggest thing to me. Made, made, our li- made things so much cleaner yes. for our linebackers. They hit their, again, Correct. we didn't really talk about them. They did their job for the most part. And it was much cleaner for them up front, I think. They were able to see what they needed to do. And now, again, this conceptually, this could change against a different team. But I think against Missouri, this was really helpful for us. Yeah, and it was also just a matter of actually how they were aligned, right? And often we've had these odd front alignments. We've been not on the right side of the field numbers-wise. We've been doing silly things. We were just very basic football sound in the front seven. And again, we said at length, if you just get in the right spot on the field to start the snap that's like half the battle even in college football so all good stuff there all right the results what happened statistically well missouri had only 16 first downs only 27 minutes in time of possession they were a woeful three and 15 on third down it's about time we have something like that now again stop yourself for a second grant them has done very well against inferior offenses as you said though alan missouri on film was solid and they had done very well two games in a row against an, a very good Kentucky defense and then a horrible LSU offense. I mean, defense. But either way, this was not a trash offense, and it's not a senior quarterback either. Good result for Florida on third down. They ran 66 plays, most of those in the fourth quarter. Right. When the game was, again, yeah. if you if you would have take, taken a snapshot at the end of the third quarter, the statistics are m- even much more in our favor. Much more in our favor. And here's, here's the main reason why you're about to hear it. They had 248 total yards with 224 passing at the end of the game. But at the start of the fourth quarter, Allen, they had just 89 yards passing. They had under 150 total yards of offense entering the fourth quarter. That's amazing. Wild for this defense that was an absolute sieve. Um, obviously, no interceptions for Florida, but we had two fumble recoveries. So two turnovers generated, which we will take for one sure. One really was a, crucial. One was a gift. One was earned. Uh, we had three sacks, one that came late. And again, they had uh, Larry Roundtree, who's a great running back, right? This guy's fantastic. We highlighted him. Had 2.6 yards of carry, 14 attempts for 36 total yards. So we completely took him out of the game. So all in all, obviously, the best defensive performance from Florida. The results bared it out. The film bared it out. It wasn't perfect, but it was a huge improvement. Yes. And, you know, it's funny. I would have thought with this kind of uh, other statistical results, we'd had a few more sacks. I thought we put a decent amount of pressure on Bazelak, but not, we didn't crush him in the pocket like you would think you were totally dominating. Um, but I think that's a result potentially of us saying we need to contain them more than we need to dominate them. Uh, I don't know if that was a thinking the strategy, but I want to talk about a guy who's been oft mentioned on this podcast thus far this season, Kyrie Campbell, who's not a all American type player, but I think he is such a key cog for this team. I think this really showed up. This might've been the um, secret sauce potentially. So Kyrie Campbell playing defensive tackle alongside Slayton, who's playing nose tackle, allows Zachary Carter to slide outside to strong side defensive end, allows Brenton Cox to move into his more natural position of uh, buck linebacker. I thought this was so key for us. It, I translated across the board. Now, again, you're getting a greater level of play, a guy who's played a lot in the SEC. He's an SEC caliber defender. He can make an impact on the game individually, but what he allows everybody else to do, this bore out exactly as I hoped it would. Again, not in the dominance of everyone just crashing through and sacking the quarterback on every play, 
but it made us really effective and efficient at doing what we were trying to do. And then when we wanted to go heavy across the front, you could play Slayton, Campbell. You could bring in another defensive tackle. You could bring in Gervin Dexter. You could do lots of different things and play a much heavier front than what we'd been able to do previously, um, where we're just really trying to hold on to the point of the attack. So I thought it was potentially huge for this Gator front. And it, again, this is Missouri. It's not Alabama or an elite offense, but that he was everything I wanted him to be in his first game back. Yeah, his impact on the game was was extraordinary. And a lot of it was what you mentioned. It just it's the fit of everyone else. And Florida, of course, is still, if you if you pull up the stats, right, is still playing 80% of the snaps in this game with three down linemen, as they would call it. And as you mentioned, you know, you have linebackers filling those gaps elsewhere. Florida in this game, because we weren't going to have so many guys so far away from the line of scrimmage, finally played a game, Alan, where we actually had enough guys at the line of scrimmage to equal the offense. And, and we've said on film, when that happens, even from even from the first game of the year, Florida's defense has been actually okay against the run. But the biggest stuff you get out of Campbell is what you just mentioned, and I don't need to rehash it. But the gap, the gap fill from him is going to be pretty much perfect as a D-tackle. And that means Slayton is going to get single teams sometimes, or Campbell is. And whichever one of them has one guy, you can consider that gap eviscerated. And now if you're a linebacker, you quickly read the field. Ball snapped. Okay, they singled Slayton. You know that that gap is gone. You can trust it, which means now the running back has fewer choices. That helps you make your fill. It helps you play faster. So I thought what you pointed out was great. By far our best if you're going to think of four guys rushing the passer lineup is what you mentioned. It's Campbell, Slayton, Carter, and Cox. It will hurt us not to have Carter for the first half of the Georgia game because he has been fantastic on film. We've been highlighting it continually. He's been getting great drive into the backfield. Of course, we can survive without him, but you would much rather have had him, especially with those four guys going together. But either way, make no mistake about it, Alan. You mentioned it in the preseason, the importance of a guy like Campbell for fitting this roster, given where our depth is, cannot be understated. Uh, it's fantastic that he was able to get his grades back to the point to where he can get reinstated. Good for him. And he comes back just in the nick of time. So you talked about us getting beat over the middle of the field by a lot of teams, especially Texas A&M, that Missouri likes to go to the middle of the field. Seem like we cleaned that up or... Is that a little bit of a mirage there too? Were they still effective there? Well, they were effective there, but there's a difference between being effective as far as completion. So they had 12 of 17 passes completed in the middle of the field, which seems good until you recognize that very few of those did anything important. And almost all of them were in the fourth quarter. And many of them contained to a three-yard catch. Exactly. So that's okay, right? So what matters more is there were one of five outside the numbers. They were 0 for 4 on passes of 13 plus yards. They were 2 for 7 on passes of 5 of 13 yards. So that tells you the game right there. You cannot win a football game with the time of possession they had and those stats. So it tells you, like you just mentioned, that means their completions were all rather inconsequential. Unlike AM, where they were gouging us for first downs, big yards, big plays, right? So excellent job. That's what you'd want to see and expect to see. And again, 
It's sort of an epidemic, as we mentioned, with these modern spread offenses. They don't want to attack the outside of the field, the outside of the numbers. It's also a big reason why you're going to always hear NFL scouts talk about quarterbacks having to transition to playing in the NFL because you have got to throw a lot of passes outside the numbers. Uh, so, so far, Florida has predictably faced a lot of guys who don't want to throw there. This was the first game where we actually made them throw there, made them throw deep, and they struggled, and the numbers bared it out. So that's obviously fantastic. And again, had we done that against AM, that result would have been different as well. All right, let's talk about anything else that we did right. You know, you mentioned that we wanted to make us beat them, make them beat us deep. For the most part, we invited them into that, and they were not able to take advantage. Now, again, that one broken play downfield where they had a nice little coverage role where they're blocking out front that's a nice little play he drops it we might have tackled him anyway but if Bezak throws a good ball he's definitely in the end zone um anything else to add here and what we did right so as far as the what we did right category obviously Torrance was excellent we hadn't got to see a lot of him he was just sort of playing a two deep safety role and he all of a sudden came in and they asked him to do everything and we had mentioned that our younger guys had been really solid as our best zone defenders. When you look at them play zone, they're the ones who seem to get it, which is either a good sign because your older guys were taught horribly and don't listen or a really bad sign, meaning their high school coaches taught them better than we teach them. Hard to know at this point in time, but Torrance was fantastic. Uh, he definitely needs to be on the field more. He's competent. He's sound. He's smart. He tackles well. We highlighted a lot of his technique. He did get beat, Allen on the, the play you mentioned. It was a double move, which again... Go watch the video. We'll walk you through it. But really, Brad Stewart, the senior there, was the one who hosed him as a free safety who gets caught again underneath the play, which is a, a systemic issue that we have. But I thought Torrance and Campbell made the largest impact on the game. We obviously benefited significantly, and we have to mention every podcast, from not having Steiner in the game. We just did. He is a wasted player. And if he plays against Georgia, which I'm going to tell you right now, I'd bet on him doing it. Because I just feel like this is not a new Grantham, and I want to be wrong so bad. But man, it was nice to have eleven players in the field. That was really helpful, and obviously no Marco at corner. They tried to attack Jaden Hill. That was obviously the guy they wanted to go after. They rarely attacked Elam, and they really had no success despite having a play where he was obviously beat. So we did so many things right. Is the answer, especially given where we came from, where we struggled, Alan? And this is perhaps the more interesting piece. We blew some exchanges. We blew some exchanges, so we shift across correctly, and we would still somehow blow the most basic of Warren Man defense. I'll play high or low, or you play east or west, or however you and I want to handle this as corner and strong safety. We we still messed that up a little bit. Obviously, the deep pass that should have hit us for was a was a mistake by us. We had the right coverage on, didn't execute that. Early on in the first quarter, we did miss some gap assignments. That big end-around run they had was a blown gap assignment but obviously for most of the rest of the game we dominated but perhaps most troubling and if there's one thing about this game that's the opposite of a silver lining whenever we did play zone yeah like true zone like off zone not when we were playing more aggressively yeah, drop guys into coverage. we're dropping into coverage which is something you need to be able to do zone is not the enemy zone is important you need to run it well we still struggled mightily our linebackers just have no idea where to go how to get there what to do it's not good. 
It is not good, Allen. That's the one thing that still shows on film is there was virtually no improvement in that regard. I don't have much hope that's going to improve. So that's the one piece that really stuck out is still, ugh, so many things got better, but that does not look any better. Yeah, the, it, you know, it's hard to pick out too many moments where we struggled. Like you said, every and every defense is going to give up yardage and plays. It's the, impossible to play perfectly. Um, but again, we didn't need perfection. We needed competence. And this was a competent defense. So great. Ways to improve. You've got it down here. Build on this momentum. Keep doing the things you did well. Like you said, being solid on numbers, being more aggressive around the line of scrimmage. And then, of course, as you would probably like fly a banner across the stadium, play different safeties, not Steiner. Would you rather see Torrance than Brad Stewart? So, yes, the answer to that question is yes. I mean, Torrance is a better player than Brad Stewart. And I think Brad Stewart's fine. I think he's made himself into something nice. That's not going to happen despite my desires and wishes. Uh, But I would. I would rather see Torrance out there. Of course, I'd have Sean Davis at at free safety, hands down. And I'd put put a lot of Torrance there. Now, you can play Brad Stewart, which is nice. If you want to actually spell a guy, Brad Stewart can get in there. Brad Stewart can play. I would not be, oh my goodness, Stewart's in the game. Uh, but I think if you're talking about your top end lineup, who's your best lineup? Who two or three games from now could be absolutely the best together? It's definitely Sean Davis and Torrance out there. That is a nice one-two combo. Will we do it? I don't know. Of course, I love. I would love to see Jaden Hill at corner, Chester at nickel. I think that would take our defense to a whole well, different level. The nice thing is that you don't have to play your corners almost the entire game in a tight game. Correct. That the receivers are subbing. If those corners are not, eventually they're going to get worn down. You want to still rotate those guys and having a guy like Chester, even if he's not starting, playing a lot of snaps is is better. You want fresher guys. So we were basically playing with the skeleton crew. And if Missouri had run the kind of, you know, percentage of snaps that the other teams did, we would have just been like hosed in the fourth quarter by guys who are inferior. Correct. Correct. So that's this point in time that I want to say this. So on this podcast, we say it all the time. We don't have any allegiance towards a particular player, coach. We don't have any ill will towards a particular player, coach. We just look at what the data says and we try to move with it. And data takes a little bit of time. So guys have to prove themselves in more than one game. So subject of, of Grantham here, which we're going to talk about later, but I want to tease into this. This is a huge week for Grantham because now he's going to have a full deck of cards in front of him. And of course, we all know what my fears are. I don't even need to air them. He's going to go back to what he had been doing, and he's hard-headed. The quotes that he came out with last week were ludicrous to me, some of the stuff that he's saying. Full of pride, full of, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. We're not going to change anything. But then yet, things were, in fact, different. So we'll see what happens. But it's going to be really interesting. We're going to talk about it on the flip side of this podcast when we get to Georgia. But I want to tee it up now because this will be not only the biggest week in the Mullen era, it will be by far the biggest week in the Grantham era because he has he has done what Bane says in in Batman. I've I've given them hope. Hope is is this crushing this will leave you crushed if it doesn't work. And he's given it to us. And now that we're going to try to tell you on, on the Georgia preparation is whether you should believe in that or you should just be expecting horrible things. And we're going to try to walk through that. But who made an impression on you on defense? We've already talked about Torrance and Campbell. Anybody else? Well, you've got him on here, and I was going to highlight him too. Uh, Britton Cox, you know, makes a mistake early on on that end around. But the next time they tried it, tackled him for a, 
significant loss. I thought he played well, especially considering he looked like he tweaked his ankle on like the first play of the game. So gutty performance from him. Hopefully he's healthy 100% against Georgia. Um, I think a solid game from him. He didn't like stand out in the positive a lot, but you, you weren't calling his name and saying he's jumping inside. He's not filling his gap, which is excellent from him. Oh, he was fantastic. He got a lot of love on the film breakdown session. And perhaps he watched our previous film breakdown. I don't know because I did call him out on there and say, if you're watching this, let's get your gap control right. And his <laughs> gap control improvement was remarkable. Obviously, the guy that's very talented, very good for the team. Intern Brandon picks here. Uh, Jalen Lee, who is a four-star freshman, forced that fumble, had a sack. He wears number 92, played there in the fourth quarter. And then... This is a cool one. So Pat Moore, who is a, a redshirt junior and walk-on, actually played some with Brandon. They knew each other. They're friends. And he had a pass breakup yeah, he looked, there in the fourth quarter. He looked capable out He was there. very capable and competent. Despite being a walk-on, you wouldn't expect that. Yeah, he so, played ahead of like some very high-profile freshman. He did. So that was actually great. Obviously a huge reward, I think, for a guy who had been working really hard. Uh, so cool for Brandon to highlight one of his friends there. All right, special teams. This was interesting. Typically, we just gloss over it and say, yes, we're better than they are. But we had Chris Howard wearing number 71, an offensive lineman, as our kicker with that number there. You're a true walk-on if you're wearing that kind of What number. did you think of uh, of his performance? Two for two for field goals and five extra points made. I, mean, I think you'll take that from your backup kicker when you lose your All-American level guy to COVID. I mean, the that's what you want. You want a guy who can make a 30, 35-yard field goal and in consistently. You're not going to ask him to boot a 55-er you know, probably unless you have to. Um, the kickoffs, I think Missouri could have burned us. There's a lot of short ones. I don't know if that was the coaching staff telling him to do that, but they were fair catching some that I was like, man, they should have returned that. So if he has to do that again against Georgia, we, that could be a problem for us. But I thought great performance by him stepping in, kicking, you know, in the first quarter, we needed those field goals and he nailed them. Yeah, great job by him. Thankfully, Alan, Evan McPherson has posted on the World's Message Board Twitter and said he's back. He'll be here this That's week. Good. To which all of us, it's not often you celebrate your kicker like we celebrate McPherson here, but that guy. Well, he's a weapon. I mean, and he's a, an absolute And in a weapon. tight game, long field goals difference maker. can make a big difference. Yeah. Difference maker, no doubt. So we get him back. That's huge news. Any final thoughts on this game? You know, I think we really needed it. We needed a convincing win heading into Georgia. And it feels like everything's on the table. That we can compete with this Georgia team if we play well. We have some advantages. They have some advantages. Uh, I won't get too much into that. But it it's great to have this type of win heading into your biggest game of the season. And that's my final thought from this week is that we talk about it. I said we're going to put it on merch. You know, one game does not a college football season make or however we want to Yoda speak that. After AM, here we are. This is brutal. This is terrible. Let's hope the defense gets better. Things are ugly. And now, like I said, I think we're entering into this Missouri game as high, I mean, sorry, as and this Georgia game as high as we could be entering it as high as we could possibly be entering it because of the sort of crashing of the of the the balloon that occurred at AM. And that's right where you want to be, though. It's right where you want to be. You want your team full of optimism and as confident as they could be. And that's where we are. 
And so we're going to see what happens. But I love the position that we're in right now, team chemistry-wise. As a locker room, it could not be better, uh, in my opinion here. Okay, let's look at the rest of the Week 9 games. The games that we picked. Uh, I had a nice week, or a decent week. Went 6-5. and five. You went a disastrous 3-8. and eight. I'm Ouch. now ahead of you on the season. We're both still sub 500 here, but man, you, you took a beating. I had, I knew it. I kept saying it was going to happen that you were going to have a lopsided week on me, and not just two weeks in a row. I've gotten killed. Okay, well, uh, first game on our slate, uh, Wisconsin Nebraska did not happen. Was canceled. Big Ten has backed themselves into a corner with their schedule, and that's got to hurt. Okay, moving along, number 17 Indiana defeated a frisky Rutgers team. 37 to 21. And shame on me for not sticking with Indiana. Like, we knew they were good. I knew they were good. They were favored by 12. They won handily. And, and Rutgers could not obviously find the magic they had the week before against Michigan State. Allen, how does this happen in college football? I don't know. I can't wait to talk about that one. But one, either way. One game does not a college football season make. No, there it does go. not. But Indiana, nice start to the season. Another wild swing. In scenarios after we recorded this, Boston College at Clemson. Clemson came in favored by 31. Trevor Lawrence does not play in this game. They pull out a win 34-28. They were down by 14. Boston College was playing really well. They shut out Boston College in the second half. It's been really fun highlighting Jeff Halfley each and every week on the program, right? We started with Boston College, and I was joking like, oh, that's right. I had to look up who their coach was because COVID happened. It was Halfley. Oh, he's a good DC. I wonder what he's going to do. What he's done is phenomenal work there. And here's the question I have for you, Alan. Clemson was favored by 31. And when Trevor Lawrence went out, they were only favored by 25. Just a drop off of six points. Is that all Trevor Lawrence is worth to you is six points? Well, I guess they liked what they would have potentially seen from their freshman QB, DJ. I'm not going to attempt to say his last name without practicing. Um, I think the Clemson defense right of the ship in the second half. I think that's what they were expecting for them to be able to shut down that BC offense. And they couldn't in the first half made some adjustments and really slammed the door. Yeah. And I took Clemson thinking that which was crazy. I was even talking about how Boston college was solid and et cetera, but either way Clemson now, should they be concerned? I mean, I guess Notre Dame with no Trevor Lawrence. We're going to talk about it either way. We'll see. I think their defense would concern me. That would concern me. That was a surprisingly bad performance by a defense that in theory should be better. We're going to find out. Okay. Michigan State, man, the highs and lows here. Michigan State, after losing to Rutgers the previous week, beats Michigan. We were talking about Michigan. Man, they put it on Minnesota. Well, Minnesota looks like trash. Michigan looks like trash. Everybody looks like trash. They lose to Michigan State 27-24. And again, Michigan State fans now go from, oh, to our season is already made. We're playing with house money. But this is a fun application of the three-year test for me. Jim Harbaugh failed it three years ago. And we said at that very time on the podcast, look, this guy's never going to win anything. That seems crazy. It seems insane to say that. But here he is in year six and... I don't know where Michigan's going to go, but I'm going to keep saying it. There's a guy that's right down the street there who's an Ohio State guy who they cannot hire. They're not going to hire Luke Fickle, and he wouldn't even take the job, I feel like. But, man, I bet they want to. We're going to see what happens in Michigan land, but that is not I mean, a good Can you really fire Har- Harbaugh? Sure you can. I would. 
Okay. Not right now. You give them the rest of the season, but well, certainly. No, I mean they're not. They're not going to do it. Of course, I'm on the extreme end with my three year test, but I, the data says what the data says, Alan. They're okay. not going to win. And how many times in a row are you going to lose to Ohio State before you make a change? Again, in this next game, Vegas knows. They always know. Kansas State at West Virginia. West Virginia was favored by three and a half. We both took Kansas State. West Virginia handles them thirty seven to ten. I will say in our continued defense that. I hadn't even seen West Virginia played, as we mentioned, play at all. But, man, I mean, what is up with Kansas State? Don't ever touch them on a betting spot. In West Virginia, I need to watch them play. Maybe they're actually pretty decent. I think they are. Under Neil Brown, they've been improving, improving, improving. I like them. They had, you know, they've been up and down this year. But I, the Big 12, I think, I think, is essentially eliminated from the playoff, as we'll get to in a couple of minutes. Maybe not, not fully. This is a wild year, but seemingly. Cincinnati takes care of business. They've romped Memphis 49 to 10. I'm going to keep riding who I think is the obvious candidate for the absolute next great coach in Luke Fickle, at least the guy you hire for sure. I'd be bending over backwards to get this guy in my program. If Even I was though he's AD. a DC and, and our former DC defensive background roots and most people have been leaning towards hiring offensive minded coaches. This guy is running a killer program at Cincinnati. They are incredibly consistent. Memphis was competitive with everyone. They just crushed him. I think he's got a lot of good things going for him. I take a shot. Okay. Number five, Georgia. Beats Kentucky in an offensive display. Just kidding. 14 to three. This is just theater of the bizarre. How Vegas knows this. Minus 14 and a half. And you look and you think, yeah, you know what? Georgia, their offense is all over the place. Kentucky's got a good defense and stuff. But I don't know. I th- That is, if you're a Georgia fan, you're just kind of stuck with the weird Kirby Smart world that you're in every year. Where like you play with Bama for three quarters and you're exciting and awesome. And then you beat Kentucky 14 to three. And here's a fun one for you. I think we're going to be favored by more than 14 and a half when we play Kentucky if our defense is just average. But we're underdogs to Georgia. So that shows you how Vegas looks entirely at team versus team well in said. case you're looking at that. We would never have bet this next game, and we told you not to. Hopefully you did not. LSU at Auburn. We both took LSU minus three. Auburn crushes them 48 to 11. I, I had no idea what this game could have gone in every different direction. I wasn't necessarily predicting this one, but there you go. Yeah, stay away. And it's like, what do I do when there's two coaches I don't trust? Of course, I've been on record for the demise of it at Orgeron, and I believe in that, but you can't bet a meta strategy every week. And Gus Malzahn's all over the place, and I don't know, again, don't bet those games, but I suppose if you're Auburn, it feels good to beat LSU. Yeah, I don't know what it feels like to be an Auburn fan. I, I don't know where I would be. Texas beats Oklahoma State, number six, Oklahoma State, 41-34. I had a gut feeling about Texas. I took them. I, I got you on that one. Yeah, and overtime. And we even mentioned, hey, Texas always plays close games. That was what we said against these rival games like this. And uh, that was a good back-and-forth game. And, again, the Big 12 was already out of playoff competition. But if you thought Oklahoma State was your dark horse, your dark horse is now gone. Mississippi State gets blanked at Alabama 41-0. I think this this was very satisfying, as we mentioned on the pod, um, for one Nick Saban and why both of us took them. I think he's heard a lot about the air raid for a long time. Of course, he uses a lot of those principles in his own offensive playbook now, but I think all these SEC coaches are enjoying beating Mike Leach right now. I don't know how Mike Leach is taking it. I don't know how Mississippi State fans are taking it because they were not good last year, but they are like 
anti-competitive right now. They just have absolutely no offense. And the grand experiment of having no running game and also having some of your best players opt out is making things pretty tough. Pretty tough out there in Starkville. Arkansas at Texas A&M. A&M favored by 11. When we recorded, they pushed. They win 42-31. This game was not close early. It was close late. And in fairness to us, this line floated to minus 14. So we would have won for that one for sure. Again, another great result for Arkansas. Although they were getting handled most of the game, if you told Arkansas fans you'd be where you are right now and you're playing within 11 points on the road against A&M, you're taking that every single day of the week. Yes, great start of the season by them. And good work by Mond against Arkansas. Again, a heavy coverage team. Mond was able to abuse them, which shouldn't be too shocking to us because too much coverage against Mond is actually what he likes. You have to get more in his face and do things Arkansas typically doesn't do. Ohio State at Penn State. Ohio State seemingly controlled for most of the game. This ends up being kind of close to the end, 38-25. Yeah, Ohio State seemed like they were going to separate, and they didn't. And then things got pretty wild and interesting. This was my actual lock of the week. I placed a big bet on this one and squeaked it out. Had him at minus 10 uh, for my bet. So that was just enough. But either way, Ohio State I still think is a real deal. Penn State 0-2. I'm sure most Penn State fans would not have envisioned that. 1-1, yes. 0-2, no. SEC roundup news, Ole Miss crushes Vanderbilt 54-21. I'm going to keep asking the question, how long is Derek Mason going to be the coach at Vanderbilt? I don't know. Seemingly much longer than he should be. And Mississippi State star running back Kylan Hill is now sitting out the rest of the season. He was a first-team All-SEC member in 2019. And seven other transfer players are also sitting out. So the classic first year, things aren't going so well. Now you have an out bailing from the program are you worried about mike leach's tenure at mississippi state already no gotta give I mean, him time to flip the roster yeah i mean the opt-outs you're gonna have some guys opt out the kylan hill thing who should have been a leader for your team i mean the season is definitely bailing. I, I think most coaches would have been worrying about this if your season goes you know the wrong direction our guy's gonna bail and that's happening a little bit at mississippi state so four teams fell in a slate that we ourselves said was not exactly super exciting, just telling you that the top 15 this year is maybe more topsy-turvy than ever, or perhaps more importantly, something all of you SEC fans, us included, have argued from the beginning, is if these teams were playing at least somewhat competitive games every single week, they would lose more. It's really easy to be consistent when you play a trash opponent every two or three games. I think we are seeing that this year. Alan, did you catch Joe Tessitore calling his own son under center like a pro by the way making no seemingly oh, he is a pro, reference yeah. to his own son just naming out Tessator, getting up with the hard cow is a great moment yeah he's the holder on the field goal unit runs up under center they get them to jump off sides it was a pretty fun moment i'm sure it was an incredible moment for him as a father oh incredible super competitive game obviously boston college versus clemson it's boston college who pulled that off against clemson uh, obviously, we already mentioned the the Wisconsin-Nebraska canceled game. This is going to keep happening to the Big Ten. Somebody asked me if Ohio State doesn't play their full complement of games, do they make the playoffs? And I think it depends on what happens with the other teams. But if the SEC is able to get, let's say, two quality teams through a full schedule, I don't know how you could put a 7-0 seven, a seven and Ohio State team in the playoff that played potentially three or less games and or five and yeah, or I don't think so and I think they've been they've been quite clear to the Big Ten that they needed to complete that schedule so we're going to see what happens there 
Uh, Oklahoma, if anyone cares, crushed Texas Tech, which... I mean, any- Texas Tech had been a competitive team. I, maybe been. Oklahoma's ride the ship. It's probably too late for them for a playoff, but... Yes, for sure. But they could come back, so we'll keep tabs on the Big 12. Obviously, contender, pretender here for you, of course. I think both of us are going to say Cincinnati. pretender. Yeah, pretender, because they're not as good as other teams. But let's let's do this. Cincinnati and BYU are the undefeated teams. Cincinnati plays a way harder schedule. Yeah. So if anybody had any chance to argue about trying to make a playoff, it's Cincinnati, not BYU. Cincinnati versus BYU would be super fun, however. I know BYU would try to schedule the game. They'd probably try to find a way to make it. But who do you think would win between Cincinnati and BYU? You I would take Cincinnati. Yeah, no and BYU is, I think, a really good team. But I don't think they're a great team. I, I, no one would want to play Cincinnati in like a eight-team playoff early on. Uh, I don't think that you can necessarily reward them over a top-tier team. We'll see if things get screwy and teams. there's not an obvious fourth team or even third team. We'll see. As a person who obviously loves flag football, where you can lateral as much as you want, which you can in tackle football too, but in flag football, there's no fumbles. So you have a really a far less uh, penalty if you accidentally nerf your pitch. Did you see the Rutgers lateral touchdown? I did on social media. I mean, I guess it was unfortunately overturned, but it was kooky. You love those things. It was amazing. I mean, first of all, there's several good things, but the offensive lineman who has the dexterity to pick the ball up off the ground, then carry four guys, launch the ball all the way over his head. And then really the true the true glory was the quarterback got the ball and did what any good flag football player would do. Made a nice few ball fakes, opened up his body, threw a dart across the field, which sprung them for the touchdown. But good times whenever you see those plays happening in college football. Okay, a few news and notes here. Florida did get a five-star commitment from Sam McCall, listed as an athlete, for the 2022 class. That uh, pique your interest there? It does pique my interest because he is a top 30 player, and so we need more of them. I'm going to keep beating the drum. More and more and more top 30 players. Tyler Rummery, it's a third time you've been mentioned this podcast enjoy it we need more of those players i don't care if they're fictitious i don't care if the ranking systems are making them up i want more of them so yes i'm happy about it i think it's good again this feels so far out especially in a covid year i wouldn't put no tie stock all your in hopes it. Into. absolutely put no stock in it no doubt florida offensive tackle trent brown hospitalized yeah former yeah hopefully he's okay yeah former obviously former trent brown he's the raiders he can't be a current player uh hopefully everything's okay with him tommy townsend i don't know if you saw the the fourth down conversion he had I for did. the chiefs throwing a dart out there again yeah. we highlighted him he's a really good athlete he's awesome and the chiefs are using him that way which is great and he's still having the most fun i think of any punter in the nfl for sure what do you think about College Game Day being held at Justin and Steve Seitz hallowed grounds, Augusta National, on November 14th? I think it's fun, especially in a year where you're not having the campus environments. I like them taking chances. I mean, it's it's pretty cool. It's going to be a crazy day with the, you know, the Masters happening, college football. I, yeah, I mean, it's the best of a bad situation. I love it. I think in a COVID year, you have you have a chance to do this. Why not just do it? Is anyone going to be there? Nope. Is it still going to be kind of cool? Yeah. Why not? I'm down. All right. Leading into the Georgia week here before we go to coaching corner. Did you catch Chauncey with the Saints getting just mugged? I don't know what else you call that. In the middle of the football field on Sunday's game versus the Bears? Seemingly very strange. Javon Williams, the former UGA wide receiver, just throws a couple punches at him. Uh, 
someone did a little detective work and realized that a couple plays before or a little a while before um, game wise, Chauncey had just ripped off his mouthpiece off his helmet, which is, you know, childish, but whims apparently, you know, it was in real time, like a while and lots of game time. Uh, he finally gets it back on the field, runs his route and runs immediately over to Chauncey. So I don't know all that was going on, but if you're a football player, what are you doing? These guys who throw punches at helmets, can you? Does it get any dumber than that? No, and that's why I loved it. Is so often you see players throw punches back, but Chauncey just took every punch right in the face, like he's just sitting there, like what is happening to me? Uh, but I, I do, I thoroughly enjoyed like the instigation, and then you can just imagine Wims is sitting on the bench, just waiting to get on the field to attack Chauncey Gardner, and he does, and it's Florida Georgia week, so it's a nice. And then you see, I believe Janoris Jenkins coming in, like yes tackle coming on wins, top like, and come flying in i mean just wild wild stuff going on there all right it is now time to honor one dr galloway uh you too by the way can sponsor the show if you like dr galloway want to have us do a library just contact us we can do it for you galloway orthopedics located in tampa florida provides compassionate effective care and offers a full range of orthopedic treatment options although i have not had dr galloway work on me alan I have had my fair share of orthopedic surgeries in my time, shoulder, foot, otherwise. So if you need such services, get it done by a pro. Whether you are a pro athlete or a weekend warrior, Dr. Galloway and Galloway Orthopedics will get you back to 100% in the least amount of time possible. Galloway Orthopedics is, of course, owned and operated by Dr. Galloway, a highly trained, board-certified orthopedic surgeon. He obtained all of his degrees from UF and worked as one of the team physicians for the Gators, including running out of the tunnel in the 2008 national championship year you can visit his website at gallowayorthopedics.com you can call him at 727 go gator again gallowayorthopedics.com or 727 go gator coaching corner time maryland is tied 38 38 allen it's the fourth quarter they have one timeout left they complete a pass the clock is running to the 45 yard line of minnesota Clock is running, 4th and 15, they have a timeout, they're tied. They choose to let the clock run out and go to overtime rather than call a timeout with one or two seconds left and throw a Hail Mary. Your yeah, thoughts on this? Uh-huh. Maybe the coaches smoked a joint right before halftime. I don't know. what. I, don't re- I would love to ask them about this. But I can't come up with a, a reason why they would operate this way. Do you have a counterfactual? Like, a what, give me the reason why they would not do uh, it? It's clearly fear. Like, you're worried for the less than 1% chance that, like, it's a sack fumble or a Hail Mary intercept. I don't know. It, it's ridiculous. And, again, unfortunately, Mike Loxley, who I think is one of the worst coaches of all time, who we profiled when he went to Maryland because my dad went to Maryland, my cousins go to Maryland. I've got a lot of family that went to that school. I don't know. There's no defense for that. That's just ridiculous. Maryland, however, did win the game in overtime. So maybe now he feels justified with that decision. I have no idea. All right, Missouri kicked a field goal, Alan, when they were down 27 points. I know maybe they're looking into your rule of scores there, but it was on fourth and one too, I believe. It's like you, I'm pretty sure, yes. I don't remember, but it doesn't even matter. Yes, it doesn't matter. Rule of scores doesn't apply when you're down 27. (laughs) You need a lot of points. Yeah, what are you doing? Are you just signaling to your team that you're giving up? There's, There's no benefit to doing that at all. 
Missouri sticking with them. Now, this is a much more interesting one that we talked about in real time at the game. So Missouri is winning 7-6. to six. They face a 4th and 1 right around midfield. They choose to try to jump us off sides. We don't, but we do. We kind of we do. do. They don't, by the way. I don't know what they were waiting for. And they should have just touched him, right? Just touch us or move. They don't, thankfully. And then they punt. Did you like this or would you go for it? I like the drawing offsides, especially if you do it, but make sure you snap the ball or do something. I, I don't mind a punt here, even though I'm hyper aggressive usually with going forward on fourth and one. That point in the game, I'm okay with it. What did you feel about it? So this is funny. I like how we get to illustrate all the various tactical thoughts. Again, on 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 expected value, you always go, right? The math tells you you always go. You should be more nuanced than that. So the game flow at this point in time was Florida was really struggling on offense. You and I were talking about how home games now are sort of like anti-home games because the crowd can't help you. In fact, it's almost weird. Like it's an uncanny valley situation where your team is like used to getting supported and they're not, and now they're not playing well. The Missouri sidelines full of swagger. Your defense is playing really well. So you figure if I punt them deep and I kind of get another stop out of them, they're going to even feel worse about themselves. Whereas if I don't get this, they get the ball midfield. Maybe it launches them downhill. It's an interesting thought. If you're looking, Alan, at the total scorecard, you're saying for Missouri to win the game, even in an upset, they're going to have to score at least 24 to 27 points, even in a game that was going slow like that, which might lead you to say, I need to be more aggressive here. I will say this though. Missouri is not Vanderbilt or some smaller school that has to try to score every time they get the ball. They had a reason to believe at that point in the game, the way things were going, that punting was an okay result. And I'm okay with it because, again, I'm huge into human behavior, and I think there was rationale for that. Again, mathematically, always go. But human behavior-wise, the way things looked and felt, it was not a bad decision. But I think if I'm Missouri, I want my team, and I'm going to answer it this way, to have a culture of being aggressive and going for things. So I would consistently be doing that as kind of the underdog SEC team. But in a vacuum, Alan, you could make a case for either one. Okay, so we called a timeout late in the half to get the ball back with just a little bit of time left. Uh, you know, end up in a, with all of the penalties and punts and non-punts, you know, didn't amount to anything, but... Did you like that we called a timeout in that situation rather than letting the clock run out? I loved it. I thought Dan Mullen's clock management with uh, four minutes and 30 seconds to go in the in the first half was was determinative in how well we did. He was calling them early and often and aggressive, saving every second because he wanted to score more. And I absolutely loved Same. that mentality from Florida. Loved it. Thought we handled it really well. Okay. Here's, one, here's one that's interesting. A little is this put in here by yeah our intern yeah this one well the, no the intern one is is coming later but this one this one we got actually multiple times I was surprised when I got it first sent to me I thought okay that's in one off but three or four different people sent us this one and here's and here is what they asked essentially and this is again I think interesting so right before half we pinned them at the one yard line with two seconds left right but then. They're called offsides. This would leads to the Hail Mary play and the brawl at halftime. Okay, you may have forgotten we did this, but we had them right down there on the one-yard line. We could have just declined the penalty and made them try to 
pull the ball out of the end zone for one play and go for a safety, essentially go for two points. Instead, we chose to go for the Hail Mary. Which one would you have preferred we did? Uh, what we did, I think enticing a team into a safety when they are have every occasion to be very conservative is truly different. Or excuse me, truly difficult. Uh, I think you can get like some kind of QB sneak where then you don't get pushed backwards. You don't lose any ground. I think it'd been really hard to do that. Yeah, I agree. If you look at the math of this, the expected value of a Hail Mary from the 45 yard line is at least some positive point value. And the expected value of getting a safety from the one yard line when a team only has to kneel it out one time has got to be almost zero. It can happen, but almost zero. Also, I think again, in general, that when you have Kyle Pitts on your team, if you can get him down to the end zone, you take your shot with that. For sure. Okay, last one, Dallas of the NFL, who is terrible, is down 12 late in the fourth. It's fourth and 22. Now, they're down 12 late in the fourth. They purposely take a safety to attempt to get the onside kick after safetying themselves down down 14. So they stay within two scores. Do you like taking an onside kick versus trying your chances at fourth and 22? Man, this <laughs> neither. I don't know. Uh, I just want to take a moment here to say the hiring of Mike McCarthy was so uninspired. I hated when they did that. You fire, finally fire Jason Garrett, and then you hire Mike McCarthy, who is basically seemingly holding back Green Bay this entire time is like the epitome of mediocrity, even though he had won a championship. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I like that you didn't even answer that question. You just took a moment to slam Mike McCarthy, which I appreciate. What would you do? Which one would you pick? They're both terrible options. Man, it depends on a couple different things. I, I don't hate taking the safety. It's creative. Yeah. I, fourth and 22 is super hard. But also an onside kick is feels like almost impossible to get when the other team knows you get it too. Yeah, the math here is probably pretty zany because you do get a field position advantage. You have to take the ball out. You kick it from, you know, I think it's your own, your own 30 in the case of a safety. It's further back, wherever it is. But... You do get that, obviously, but the math has still got to be better on fourth and 22. I would think so. Especially with penalties and other things. And again, onside kicks are woefully low in the NFL. I would I would have just gone for it. I don't, I don't hate the creativity. In, in the previous era of onside kicks when they were 20% or so, oh, this is a really good strategy. Because fourth down and 22 in the NFL is probably less than 20%. But not nowadays where it's like 35 4%. All right, it's still winning season at my bookie now i tried to get steve sites to do a special segment he thought about it he was excited about it he was going to be our my bookie stanford steve he didn't get it to me so next week we'll have him do a little betting segment Come on, for steve now Seitz. for now it's still winning season at my bookie it means doubling your first deposit and winning big bet on all sports including live betting it's simple make your picks win big and collect your cash Invest in your intuition, select from hundreds of futures or bet games in real time. Again, as always, my favorite way to do it, using MyBookie's live betting. Use our promo code GatorNation, which will double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play. So if you give 1000 you get 1000 additional dollars to play with. Sign up now by visiting MyBookie.ag and enter the promo code GatorNation, again, for a 100% deposit match. Let's talk about those Georgia Bulldogs. It's the world's largest outdoor cocktail party this year without the outdoor or the cocktails, I guess. Maybe just a party. The hated Georgia Bulldogs. This is everything, folks. Our chief rival in the SEC, 
with everything on the line. So Georgia is, of course, four and one. UF is only three and one. And Georgia is favored by three and a half. UGA has won three in a row, of course. That sucks. The Gators lost 24 to 17 last year. In general, what plagued us in this game last year is what plagued us often. Lost the time of possession battle. They were successful on third down. This is a big, big hurdle to get to where the Gators want to go. They have got to be this addition of Kirby Smart's Georgia Bulldogs. Very talented, excellent defense. Scuffling a little bit on offense. Captained, quarterbacked by one Stetson Bennett the fourth. Did not play particularly well against Kentucky through two interceptions. UJ has a few players out in this game. This is setting the table for a very, very interesting cocktail party. Okay. Kirby Smart, longtime Nick Saban disciple, of course, now in his fifth year at UGA. The talent edge, Georgia, will not lose this battle to anybody. They are first. They have 16 five-stars and 51 four-stars. That is unbelievable. Of course, they are quarterbacked by a walk-on currently. UF seventh. We got four five-stars and 44 four-stars. Returning production, Florida. Of course, Georgia famously turned over almost their entire offense from last year. Only two returning starters on offense, eight on defense. Florida, seven and five. Uh, On our end, their coaching staff, Todd Munkin, his first year as offensive coordinator. A lot of time in the NFL with the Browns, with the Bucks, Changing up that offensive system that was so anemic last year. Dan Lanning, their D.C., been there now two years. A coast DC and Glenn Schumann now in his second year as well. Okay. Let's start with the Georgia offense, James. Mentioned Stetson Bennett. A lot of talent across the field, both on the offensive line, running back, wide receivers. Not a lot of returning production. This has been the story of the Georgia season, right? In the offseason, of course, Jamie Newman was supposed to be the quarterback. Grad transfer from Wake Forest. He opts out of the season. JT Daniels, transfer from USC, former five-star. Haven't seen him yet. Dwan Mathis, who actually started the first game against Arkansas, was pulled at halftime in favor of Stetson Bennett. Very interesting moment for this Georgia program, especially on that side of the ball. What? They're trying to do versus what they're actually doing. They do have some very talented running backs. They have a couple talented receivers, George Pickens notably. Um, James, anything you want to note about them before we're looking for what they're going to do on offense? Well, a couple just notes in general is that Kirby Smart, of course, is, is the new king of the floor strategy. At one point in time, it was Nick Saban. We banged that drum just all year long, all year long, all year long. And then Tua came in and rescued the Tide for a national championship. Well, Kirby has taken that mantle with pride. It should (laughs) be noted, as far as Georgia's offense goes, Alan, that in the past three meetings, Florida's allowed 102 points to Georgia, and they have frequently come in without an offense that you would necessarily fear. So Florida's been the get-right week for Georgia. But this week, as you mentioned, looking at Georgia's team, even with a new coordinator, this is probably, despite tons of talent, 
their worst offense since the first year Kirby Smart was there. And and perhaps making things just more befuddling to me is you have a good defense. You need a better offense. You have a guy in JT Daniels, unless his leg injury is just really not healed and they're making it up, who Kirby comes out today and says, look, Stetson Bennett just gives us a better chance to win right now, which is hard to understand how that could even really be true, given what JT Daniels has put on film before. I don't know, Alan. It's very weird. But here's here's the here's the stats before we look into the film, right? So Georgia is still kind of the same. 56% run, 44% pass. Despite a new coordinator, they don't feel all that different. They still use play action quite a bit. They do have an excellent third down conversion rate of nearly 47%, largely because they get themselves in third and short a lot, which all of you know, if you play Georgia, you cannot put yourself in third and short against them. A couple of interesting nuggets I picked up on film. Bennett strongly prefers to throw the ball to the left side of the field. Left, left, middle, and middle. And he's much better than when he throws the ball to the right side of the field. Is that weird? Yes, it is. Is it true? Yes, it definitely is. So keep that in mind when we look at what Florida should do. And also, oddly, Alan, and this part's going to scare you. It scared me. Bennett likes to throw against man. In fact, his quarterback rating against cover one man is, is passer rating, rather, is 147. His, his quarterback rating and passer rating against all man defenses is extremely good. Now, I chalk this up to superior athletes in general and matchups that are favorable. However, he is horrible against any zone defense. I mean, he's terrible at it. All six of his interceptions this season have come against zone defenses. Four alone have come against the cover three. The cover three is definitely the meta defense against Denson Bennett. His passer rating is 40. We've talked about cover three before. Nick Saban famously was one of the early defensive coordinators who began to recognize the problems with cover three in the NFL. But for a long time, it was just the best defense and there was no reason to run anything else. The reason why, Allen, was if you run a good cover three and the quarterback on the opposing team does not have a strong arm, then you cannot attack the weakness of a cover three, which are those seam routes, which you saw Kyle Trask on our film breakdown hit against Missouri. Stetson Bennett does not have the arm to attack the deep seam against a cover three. So teams that run it well, Kentucky did it, Alabama did it, are eating him up. So he's oddly a really poor zone quarterback. Now let that sink in because we're a really poor zone team. As far as route goes, Allen, he loves to throw corners and post screens, curls, and flats like seemingly every Georgia quarterback. And he's really poor at fades and out routes. So he does not like to throw the ball outside the numbers, either vertically or to the outside, which again makes sense for a guy whose arm strength is a little questionable. And his stature is a little small. A little small, tougher throws. As far as their best players go, their proven running back is Zamir White. He wears number three. He's definitely a step down as far as current production on this team. Very talented guy, to be sure. Uh, But right now, not reaching the production levels of previous guys. And then Kendall Milton, who touches the ball less frequently wearing number 22, is a tackle-breaking machine. So keep an eye out for him. Their go-to receiver is number 10. That's uh, Karius Jackson and number one, George Pickens, who was their preseason All-SEC yeah, pick. Jackson's really emerged as a, a threat for them. I mean, he wasn't a guy who was on many people's radar coming into the season. He's really played well for them. And I think Pickens has suffered by not having a real quarterback throwing him the football, which is something that we talk about. If you're a slot guy or you're running a lot of interior shorter routes and you have a quarterback who likes those routes, you're going to get more balls. So with all that in the rearview mirror, what is Georgia going to try to do? It's not going to surprise any of you. 
they're going to try to run the ball and use ball control to shorten the game against Florida. Look at the game plan last year. Carbon copied that game plan. That's what it's going to be this year. Even that with is, Todd Munkin, who's theoretically wants to run a little more of an aggressive offense. I believe so, because the definition of Kirby Smart is the floor strategy. And against Alabama, although they did pass the ball a little bit more, Alan, I would be the first to say, I bet Kirby Smart's kicking himself for passing the ball a little bit more against Alabama, because those interceptions cost him greatly in that game when the game was still in the balance. And again, if you're a guy who's going to continually start Stetson Bennett, who's clearly limited, you obviously are not trying to be high risk. So I expect Georgia to attempt to whittle the clock away in this game, keep it away from Kyle Trask. I think they respect Kyle Trask at a high enough level. So they do not want to get into a shootout with us. They already lost that kind of game against Alabama. They clearly want to force us to bring an extra man into the box. That is the secret of Georgia on offense. If they force you to bring an extra defender in the box, they make you play man. Bennett can be successful and has been very successful beating teams that have to do that. Stetson can also run. In fact, they will use him to run even on. Yeah, he's a, he's a a surprisingly good athlete for a guy who's a walk-on. Correct. So he was a three-star quarterback. So we'll give him a little bit there. He was a recruited guy, Uh, but also as things go, he can run. So don't think he's just back there. He can run. He will run. They're successful with that. And here's one more nugget. Look for UGA to attack deep on first down. They throw the ball deep on first down, Allen, twice as much as they do on any other down. That's interesting. So Florida needs to be aware of this and ready for this. They will try to steal big plays on that down. All right, so what should Florida's defense do? Well, theoretically, if I'm a defensive coordinator, Allen, I've taught my team how to play zone well. I love what I've seen on film from Georgia. I feel very good about stopping them. I can run my base cover three defense. I can mix in some man. I can bring some pressures. Unfortunately for us, our cover three, as I have shown on film this season, has been just horrific. Maybe our worst bad. Our worst coverage, right? Our worst coverage by far. It's horrible, and it should not be horrible. So this brings us to an interesting point. Grantham, who loves to play zone anyway, is going to look at this and I'm sure want to do some of these things he likes to do. But unless we're better at it, Georgia will punish you if you run a poor cover three. Most of these numbers that you're seeing that are poor – uh, from from Stetson is against teams like Alabama and teams like Kentucky who run a disciplined zone defense. Now we saw Missouri pick apart Kentucky's zone defense because Basilak's still a much different quarterback than even Stetson is. So a lot of interesting things here in this game and what it presents itself with. I think Florida primarily, first and foremost, needs to make sure their numbers are solid. That's the first thing you do. If you keep your numbers solid against Georgia and you keep them out of third and one, third and two, and third and three, then you can afford to play more zone. And here's the thing, Alan, there's no reason for Florida to blitz a corner ever in this game. We don't need to run a corner blitz. It is completely useless. Alabama in the second half of this game figured out exactly what you should do. And that's stunt your defensive line and bring a ton of A-gap pressure. Why? Because Stetson is small and he likes to throw the ball over the middle of the field. So by bringing pressure right in his face, he can't see. He's a little bit of a gunslinger. He'll let the ball fly, which is why he gets himself into trouble. Uh, So Florida needs to be more aggressive with what they're doing with their front four or their front five. And then behind them, we need to make sure we do not allow him to hit left side, left middle passes. He will often throw to his first read. He will often lock onto his first read, and he does not always see the field well. So again, a prime candidate to bring some pressures directly into his face. And as with any Georgia team, Allen, you have got to pay attention to their screen game and their flats game. 
Yes. And that's something that we cannot allow them to steal easy yardage from. Yes. And also they've, they've struggled with having balls batted down. Um, this resulted, I think even an interception this past week, but this is a place where I don't think we've really excelled at this, but um, hands up and throwing lanes should be something that is preached all week. And we'll see if that comes to fruition. We do have some guys with some height on the defensive line. I mean, no one who's enormously big. You don't have a Calais Campbell out there or anything like that, but this could be a place where you, you know, force him into throws and looks that he doesn't like into really tight windows I think, you know, we haven't had a lot of interceptions, but maybe this is the week we take a little bit advantage of that. Yeah, and that's what's going to be really interesting. And as we get into the film breakdown this week, we'll show you what it looks like to run a good zone against a Stenson Bennett-led Georgia team and what it looks like to run good blitzes. Also of note, Stetson is much weaker against a dime zone than a nickel zone. And of course, that makes sense for for all the obvious reasons. With six defensive backs, you can cover the field faster. You can drop into gaps faster. And because he locks into guys, he'll take some riskier passing chances. So there's a lot of stuff to watch for here. But the key really here is if Florida has an average defensive performance in this game, Alan, we have a really good shot to win. But if Florida cannot effectively run a zone at any competent level and we have to play man, it's not the end of the world. But it's important to note that that's where Georgia excels because they have such talented guys. And that's the benefit of having really talented guys is you should be able to always win your one-on-one matchups. That's typically how it works. So does Grantham's love for zone actually pay off in a game against a team that's not built to beat zone? The film would say no, because I would say Grantham zones tend to not be good at all, generally ever. And Setson Bennett is smart enough, I think, to still be able to move the ball against them. But we're going to see what happens. Far more interesting in this matchup than what you maybe would have thought coming into it is. With all that being said, this certainly in no way, shape, or form means that Florida should play soft. It does not mean we should stay 10 yards off the ball and play zone defense. It means that you can mix in zone playing from the line of scrimmage and elsewhere. But you need to drop into zones because Stetson Bennett will force the ball into certain windows, into certain places, and you can take advantage of his really just lack of full field reading ability and his desire to throw the ball into troublesome areas to get those interceptions. So will it happen, Alan? I don't know. It's a weird feeling to do a film breakdown and say, here's definitely what you should do, but we're not very good at it. I don't know if we can do it. Which is also a basic football defense. So hence you find me just sort of word vomiting these things out here because there's a clear path to take. Whether or not we can execute it is I don't know. And again, I think, Alan, if you wanted to do this, you'd put all the young guys in. Because so far on film, they're excellent at playing zone. Put those guys in there. But if Marco Wilson and Steiner are out there, you got Brad Stewart playing nickel, my fear level, it goes very high. Okay, let's talk about the Georgia defense. They are extremely talented. Uh, In the running for the best defense in the country preseason, I think they've shown up for the most part this year to be at least resembling that. Um, Excellent on the run. They've got stars all over the field. They can rush the passer. What stands out to you? Do they look like the best defense in the country to you? They don't look like an amazing defense. Their, Their Achilles heel, Allen, is their pass defense, which, again, we said at the beginning of this year, there was 
ever a year for Florida to beat Georgia, given the fact that we don't have equal talent, it is this year. And in fact, even on paper, it matches up. Their pass defense can be had. Bama threw for over 400 yards on them. And oh, get this, Allen. They could be missing up to four starters in this game, including their all-American safety who upsteers what's going on from the back end of that defense, as well as their sack leader and several others. They could be in serious trouble roster-wise. So we could be facing even more turnover out of this Georgia team. Things couldn't look better on paper for this matchup. But make no doubt about it, this is a very solid Georgia defense. Much like Missouri, they're not just going to give you free yardage. You have to earn everything you get against them. Alabama earned it. They'll make us earn it. It should be a very intriguing matchup. We did well against them last year, except for on third down. And since we had the ball for hardly at all, those third downs became magnified significantly. Yes. the I mean, it was weird, weirdly simplistic last year. They were... Excellent on third down on offense and on defense, and that won them the game. It was a tight game. We could never climb back over the hill because we didn't have enough possessions. I, I could foresee a similar game, and whoever executes well on those downs uh, is going to come out on top. Okay, you've taught, you said it a little bit earlier that Georgia plays a lot of man defense. Do you expect them to do the same thing here? I do. I expect them to use a really similar strategy to what Missouri did and then what what uh, what they did last year. So this is three years in a row now. Florida's played Georgia. We've yet to score more than 17 points in all three of those meetings. Two of those are Dan Mullen. Certainly they're hoping to do so this season, especially since Alabama put such a big number on them. And if you fancy Florida's offense to be as good as Alabama's, there's opportunity here, right? So they're going to play a lot of cover one, and they're going to play a lot of cover two man, just like Missouri did. If Georgia can get us in third and eight, nine and 10, they're going to play their cover two man defense. It's very solid. Again, with cover two man, you have two safeties and everyone else is playing man to man. It is an extremely hard defense to beat passing wise, especially if you can get a pass rush, which Georgia can expect to get a pass rush. Not easy uh, for Florida, even with their talent to get around that. So we have to be very careful of that. And they will slant their numbers towards the passing game. They did it last year, and they'll trust they can stop our run a man down at certain situations. So one of the biggest things Florida could do early is prove to Georgia they can run on them if they're plus defenders in the pass game. That would take them out of their preferred strategy. It would do a lot also for ball control on Florida's end. So therefore, what should Florida do? Florida needs to look at exactly what they did starting in the middle of the second quarter against Missouri and copy that game plan because it should be virtually the same thing. Only difference now is you're facing a much more athletic and talented opposition, which is going to make things more difficult. The clear weakness on Georgia's team is number three, Tyson Campbell. He is by far the best corner to attack. Anytime Florida gets a chance to attack him one-on-one, they should. So look for Florida's matchups against number three. I expect Georgia to do what most teams have done, except I think Georgia may take their chances doubling Tony as opposed to doubling Pitts. I think that's something that I would expect to see this week. Tony's become far more explosive than Pitts has been. Pitts is very dangerous, but I think they may take their chances with Pitts playing a lot more one-on-one, hoping Trask does not go there. So keep an eye on that. So what should Florida do? The same thing any good offense should do, Alan. Run the best play against the situation that you are facing. Now we saw early in the game last week, and I waited to mention it until right now, Missouri play cover zero multiple times. No safety at all. Kyle Pitts one-on-one. I covered it extensively in the film study. 
and Florida ran a screen out of it and another screen out of it. That cannot happen. If Georgia, which they won't, by the way, run cover zero, they pretty much never do. But if any team gives a team like Florida a chance to have a one-on-one matchup with no safety in the entire field to run a route with Kyle Pitts, you take it every single time. So Dan Mullen cannot get cute. I want a safe play. I want this kind of play. You can't afford to do that if you want to be a championship team. If Georgia gives us an opportunity, they dare us to do something, we have got to do what they're daring us to do, and we have to be able to accomplish it. I'm worried about a few things here. Well, lots of things actually, but their defensive front, if they, well, we don't know who they're going to have totally healthy, but if they can put a lot of pressure on Trask, similar to what Missouri did, right? We talked about Missouri not having an excellent pass rush. They still got more pressure than what Florida wanted them to, especially early in the game. To clean that up a little bit, right? A little more time, a little more efficiency, Again, it's going to be really hard for us to run the ball. If we can run the ball at all, right, get us a little bit better situations ahead of the sticks, right, that's going to help us. But this is going to come down to do we take advantage of big plays? Do we take advantage of when they make mistakes? Are our receivers beating their coverage, right? I think we are better than last year at creating some of these mismatches. You talked about, you know, last year we're just basically running some of these very basic route trees and Georgia was covering them. It was really hard. We were having to grind out these plays. I think this year, with some of our bunch formations, some of the other things that we're able to run more effectively, it, it shouldn't be such a tightrope to move the ball down the field. And maybe you get a few bigger plays, you get a few uh, easier down to distances, and that's when you're starting to move the ball in a way that could actually challenge Georgia long-term. Okay, special teams, strong edge, Florida, Georgia, you know, for the last couple of years, they had the man with the glasses, Rodrigo Blankenship. He is no longer with them. Hopefully, as you said, McPherson is back. Penalties. Slight edge to Florida. That's good. That's not usually the case. Turnover margin, edge, UGA. This feels large. Looming in this game. Florida has not turned the ball over, turned the other teams over very often, and time of possession edge to UGA that should come as no surprise anything to add in those categories the turnover margin is interesting because UGA turns it over on offense much more than we do but they also generate turnovers on defense more than we do and so that that could right there be the storyline for your game is which one of those happens something to note for sure okay injuries and suspension Zachary Carter we already said he'll miss the first half of the UGA game, hopefully that doesn't hurt us too much. Antoine Powell, the other player, is a guy likely to redshirt. Doesn't really affect the game. McPherson, hopefully back. Again, stay abreast of these UGA defensive player situations. LeCount, the safety, was in a car accident. There's some guys who may or may not play, and that could be kind of a big difference. Now, again, they're super talented up and down the line. The guys they would put in there are also super talented, maybe just not as experienced. You have secondary back, maybe. Is that good? Is that not good? We'll see. Um, Okay, you want to do some keys to the game? Let's do it. So I thought about this game long and hard, obviously. I spent the most time investing into film and everything else, and, and this was probably the game where I had the least clear idea because of what you heard me ramble on on the defensive side of the ball. I think the offensive side of the ball is rather clear, 
we're going to have at times a struggle moving it against a good defense like anybody would, like Alabama did. But we're also going to be able to make plays against this Georgia defense. And it comes down kind of like what the Missouri game came down to. If our defense can give us the ball enough, we have a decided edge in this game, our offense versus their offense. And they have a decided edge, their defense versus our defense. But their defense has already yielded to a good offense. And their offense has already yielded to some fine defenses, but nothing spectacular. So what's the key to this game? I think it's pretty simple. How many interceptions does Stetson Bennett throw? That's it. That's everything. If Stetson Bennett throws zero interceptions, I don't see how we win this football game. Because that means they're doing everything they want to do. Even if it's not pretty. Even if his stat line's not great. If we cannot pick off Stetson Bennett, a guy who's prone to throwing interceptions, it means they're comfortable. And if they're comfortable, this is a game that Georgia's talent, I think, can grind out. They can do what they want to us. And maybe it becomes a coin flip at the end. But a game where Stetson Bennett throws one pick, it slants to us. Two picks? If Stetson Bennett throws two picks, Alan, I think we probably win the game nine times out of ten. Maybe even higher than that. That's how confident I am that that's, that's the one to watch. Of course, things like time of possession are important, but I'm going to go with that one. I like to pick one every single week. That's my one is how many INTs does Stetson Bennett throw as your key determiner for what happens? I'm going to go back to the old trusty third down conversion rate for their offense. I'm already having pre-nightmares about them converting on third down. This killed us, obviously, early on in the season. We were much better this past game. The zone stuff is kind of terrifying. It could work out great. Oh, we're playing our preferred defense. That's good, except for they're shredding us in it. I do think Bennett will hurt you if you let him, and I'm really afraid that we're going to let him. Man, this feels... I guess this is why you play the games. This is feels. This is a top-tier team. This is a top-tier matchup. It should be squirrely, right? If you're if you're playing in the national championship, you're not expecting to roll the team. This is a you know playoff contender. To get there, we have to beat this type of team. So we need to hold them to a reasonable third down conversion. Right? We're not a team that generates a ton of pass rush. We're not a team that plays well in the back end. This is going to be a challenge for us. Obviously, interceptions will help, as you said, but that third down percentage, watch for that. All right, what is your score prediction? Man, I've gone back and forth on this over and over and over again. I picked a Florida win at the beginning of the season, not knowing anything, because it seemed like we had much more continuity than they did. Now, as I watched us play and I watched them play, I'm back to like a coin flippy kind of game. James, I think I'm going to predict a UGA victory. Something a little closer to last year, 30-27 Georgia. That pains me to say that. I just feel like our defense is going to take another step back from what they did last week. They're going to take advantage of us a little bit along the offensive line with their defensive pressure, and it's not going to go our way. Ugh, man. 
Wind out of the sails. You know, we we try obviously, Alan, on this podcast, never to pick with our heart, which is which is great, and we pick a lot of Gator wins a lot of times because what I do and what I do in life is I tend to see what could we do, right? So, for example, if I'm doing a Georgia podcast, what could Georgia do? They could play JT Daniels, and for me, that changes this game significantly. That makes me way more afraid looking at the film on JT Daniels versus the film on sets at Bennett, despite the fact that JT hasn't played football in a while, but they're not doing that. So that's helpful. So then I say, okay, well, if they're going to play with an inferior strategy, if we played with a proper strategy, if the guys that I wished we would play on defense played Allen, I think we win this game maybe 70 to 75% of the time. I think we only comfortably by 10 to 14. So what am I saying here? If that's what I think is going to happen, if Georgia's going to play suboptimal and we could play optimal, we're at 10 to 14, well, I have to deal with with Grantham. And Grantham has proven in the time he's been here that he's not going to play optimal. So we're going to hope, here comes to the Bing quote, we're going to hope that Grantham has turned over a new leaf. I'm going to hope for that. But being a man of data that I am, I'm going to have to wait until this next week to tell you if he has turned over a new leaf. And I'm going to bet my money on the fact that he hasn't because history says so. It's a safer bet. And that's going to take my 10 to 14 point lead down to a straight coin flip because I think our personnel decisions and how we teach things is at least worth 10 to 14 points. So now we're flipping coins. And I'm going to go with Florida in this game, Alan, because Kyle Trask, if you give him a chance on a coin flip, he's going to make it happen. Now we fumbled the game away against AM. That was not Trask. Trask was driving down the field. We're going to win that football game. If it turns into the same situation, I think this Darth Vader momentum we're riding with Mullen, this team chemistry that we have right now, the feeling that we that we are here, this is our year, is going to take over. And I think that Florida wins this game 31-24. to 24, And I can see ways where we score more. But like I mentioned, and we're at the same score almost always. We're flipping coins differently. I think Florida can win this game. I think the potential could be more. And I also think the Grantham effect here, as you mentioned, is very real. And it could flip this game in a different way. But it just feels like this is the game that Trask, this is the game that his story is built for. He's been so close. He's had his moment. He's in the limelight. He's in the limelight. He hasn't gotten this kind of game. And dang it, Allen, Kyle Trask deserves this kind of game. <laughs> and he's going to get it. I'm going to will him to it. I'm going to give him the pep talk to get it done. Florida is going to take home the W31-24 in Jacksonville, and we are all going to be feeling so good come Monday. I love it. I mean, you should go give that talk in the locker room before halftime. That was so funny. It's uh, your analytics right out the window. No, I, I think we can win this game. I'm not going into this not hopeful, but considering some of the factors involved and a little bit of our history of Kirby versus Dan, which we didn't really get into. I'm a little, it makes me a a little bit like I have to pick Georgia to win until I see otherwise. Now, again, I, from the beginning of the year, I thought this was it, but our defense is not played nearly to the level that they did in previous years. A previous year's defense who could run a capable cover three I think we, like you said, dominate this. Now, they could show up and do that, right? They're theoretically capable of it. They didn't show it in the first three weeks. 
So that leads me to believe that we're going to have a hard time doing it on Saturday. Yeah, what you're doing is wise. And, and if, in fact, you're right, right, it's the culmination of a lot of hopes, two and a half years of building to this moment as a program. And if we lose this one, this one is going to hurt extra bad. It's the end of your season, but also you look down the lens of the future, Alan. Things do not look so good between Florida and Georgia. They're only going to get better from here. This is this is it. This is a moment. This is a huge climactic moment in the story of Dan Mullen and Florida, and it's going to be wild on Saturday because the importance, I think every Florida fan is going to feel how important this game is, and Georgia fans to a certain extent are too. Because we are the budding rose. You don't want to let that rose have this momentum. You want to cut that rose out, take it out, go away. And are we here to stay? Or is this our moment? And then they just say, hey, even with an inferior team and a walk-on three-star quarterback, we can still beat your best. That's going to hurt real bad. Wow. Let me just raise the stakes even more. Okay. I'm going to thank a few patrons, James. Daniel Preston. One Doug DiVirgilio. Your father, Look the at original that guy. patron. My dad. Come on, dad. Thanks for the support. Jeff Wilson, Mark Holcomb, Nathan Jeter. Nathan R- Jeter. There he is. <laughs> He's the all old, over the, the place. The older brother, yeah. Ryan Burke, David Lee, Ozzy Mutz. D. Lee, a former intern of the firm, oh, by yeah. the way. And, and professional baseball player and Gator baseball player, by the way. What's up? Ozzy Mutz, one of the many Mutzes. Hello, oh, sir. Mutz clan, yes. Good Gator of the Swamp Message Board. Love it. Justin E., Larry Edwards, Ron Noel, Chuck Pettinger, Susanna Roberts. Hello. Man. You know, Ryan Roberts, one of my best friends, is not a supporter of the pot. But thankfully, that's his wife, and yes, she is. our former roommate. Married well. Married into support of the podcast. Shame on you, Ryan. No, just kidding. Bob Beatty, Logan Weaver, H. Lee, Mike you gotta, you got to read on this one. Kuskautis? You, you froze. We've done this one before. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that, Mike. Yeah, that's Kuskautis sounds pretty good. Yeah. It's a Greek name, and it's wonderful. Uh, it's a beautiful name. Jeremy Rutland, Tyler Powers, Cody Shadoin, Sanjoy Malik, Jansen Raymond. Easy, Jansen. Easy. Kyle Stoughton, my former intern. Oh, man, What's the, up? the third Kyle. That's him. There you go. Uh, and William Bryan. Okay, James, walk us through this week's games. All right, well, we have several several new conferences back in action. We got the Mac back and we got the Pack back. How do you feel about yeah, that? Yeah, Maction is back. We got some yeah. midweek football again. You like that? You feel I, it? I like it a lot. All right. And the Pac twelve after dark is back, which yeah. I am amped about. You I are love myself the Pac twelve after dark. I will not dark. be partaking in much Pac twelve after dark. Yeah, you but. have you have two two little ones of the house that will not allow that. But for me and the other guys, we thoroughly enjoy that. All right. Number nine BYU. This is their toughest game of the year. This is it. This is the one favored by two and a half points at Boise State. I have no idea really what we're getting from Boise State. Their quarterback may or may not play. I guess I got to ride the momentum here a little bit with BYU. Yeah, good pick. I'm definitely taking BYU in this. I like these guys. I'm taking them. All right, number 23, Michigan. How is Michigan still ranked? I don't know. And how, Allen, are they favored by three and a half over undefeated Indiana? I don't know. Let's go with Windiana here. Uh, I cannot pick Michigan. Certainly, they could win this game. They're talented enough to win this game, but 
I mean, give me Indiana with another huge win. I'm taking a magical story here from Indiana. I'm riding them. All right, West Virginia at number 22, Texas. Number 22, Texas, favored by seven and a half. Nah, give me those Mountaineers. Yeah, that seems like too much, right? Yeah, West Virginia is a very solid team. Texas could win this game, but I'll take the points here for sure. Seven and a half. I have not seen, I need to watch West Virginia play because again, I'm I'm picking blind on this, but I'm going to go Texas. Why, Alan? Because I've been wrong on them all year long and I'd love to be wrong on them again and have them lose because that's fun. All right, Purdue, unranked Purdue at number 10, Wisconsin. If this game happens, yet to be determined. Wisconsin favored by eight and a half. Boiler up, baby. I want to see them this year with Rondale Moore, a more... Full roster. Yeah, I'm not a huge believer in Wisconsin yet. And I don't know. I don't think their quarterback will be playing in this game. Well, that's the real question, right? Is who do they have behind their their, their freshman sensation? So I'm going to take Purdue as well. We're picking a lot of the same picks here. Uh, Baylor at number 17, Iowa State. Iowa State, your clones making a reappearance here in the picks, favored by 14. Yeah, so what have you do you have thoughts on your boy Dave Arnada Aranda? Their Baylor? defense has been solid. Their offense has been not solid in a nutshell. That's too go. simple, but that's like pretty it. much the way it's been. So the question is, is this game low scoring enough for them to get a backdoor cover? Because they're not going to score a lot on Iowa State. Give me the clones. There you go. I like that. I like that. Uh I I mean, again, a team I haven't watched. I just see the stats on. And Iowa State seems to be getting better. As the season goes on, and they're well coached, and I don't know that that Dave is ready yet for this performance, Old but Dave. But I'm gonna take uh, I'm gonna take Dave. Okay, do it. Take Dave, because why not? I, I put I put I put you there on Iowa State with an A, not a J. That's you. Okay, there we go. Maryland, my family's alma mater in so many ways, shapes, and forms. Taking on Penn State, no big deal. Mike Loxley has already train wrecked the program to the point to where Penn State is now favored by 25 and a half. Well, Maryland is coming off a win. They this are last week. They are. Penn State, 25 and a half is a rather large number in this game for a Penn State team. Can Are they going to put up 50 against Maryland? Give me Maryland. Okay, take a Maryland. I like it. I don't bet on anything that Mike Loxley is doing. That's my recommendation to yes, all agreed. of you. Don't do it. Don't bet on it. I'm going to take Penn State, and I have no good reason to do it. Don't touch this game. This is only because I have to. All right, number 14, Oklahoma State, minus 10.5 against Kansas State. Man, do you, do you think who's more of a mirage here, Oklahoma State or Kansas State? I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for this Kansas State team. I, I pick them every week, I feel like, and I, I'm wrong, but I'll take them again. Yeah, this is the Mike Gundy bounce back game. I think they're good. I think they're heartbroken. I think they still feel like their goals are in front of them, which is probably not true, but I think they feel that way. And I'm going to take them. I'm going to take Oklahoma State here. Stanford, there's to go the Pac 12. We're here at number 12, Oregon. Oregon favored by 11 and a half. You know, obviously, we haven't seen either of these teams play. This is like week one all over again here. There's like been like 10 week ones, it feels like. Stanford. They're a huge question mark for me coming in this year. What are we going to get from them? I, I do like them as a program, but Oregon, this is their year. They're, they're, they've had some tough opt-outs. Gosh, I don't know. Do not bet this game either unless you got an inside line here, but I'll take Oregon. Yeah, I like the the logic you were going with there. If Oregon is what they thought they were, they need to win this game by more than 11.5, so I'll take that story. Tennessee at Arkansas, Tennessee favored by 1.5. Give me those Razorbacks. I like Arkansas in this game. I think 
they're going to be effective at what they want to do against Tennessee and they're getting points. Let's go for it. I've atoned for my sins. Pruitt, you're out. You're dead to me. Arkansas, you're on the rise. I'm taking Arkansas on this one. Rutgers at number three, Ohio State. Ohio State favored by 38. This feels high. This feels high to me, James. Now, uh, previous iterations of Rutgers teams, like give me put another 10 points on that Ohio State side. I feel like Rutgers is not awful. Let's go them Scarlet Knights. I'm going to give you a really bizarre lock of the week, and this is my lock of the week for Rutgers. It's very bizarre. But if I'm reading the tea leaves correctly, Ohio State, tough fought win last week. They come into Rutgers. I think when they get a lead, they're going to they're gonna chill mode this summer in the second half. I see okay. this being one of those classic, like, fourth quarter-y, funky games. Either way, given where this falls in Ohio State's schedule, I like this as sort of a, a dangerous for early on period and then really a functional bye week, so to speak. We'll see. Could be wrong. But either way, do not bet those big point lines, by the way. But for my lock of the week, because these games are tough this week, that's what that's telling you. I'm taking Rutgers as a 38-point dog. All right, Pitt, minus 1.5 at Florida State. Do not bet on Florida State for against or any other way. These two teams are just, again, dastardly. Who do you have here? I'll take Pitt for sure. FSU has shown that they can be highly incompetent. Pitt swings all around the place, but I feel like this is enough to beat this FSU team. Yeah, fool me once. Fool me twice, fool me three times Florida State, fool me no more. I'm taking Pitt as well. Number one Clemson, only favored by seven and a half against what feels like a really overrated number four Notre Dame team. But no Dame Trevor team, Lawrence in this game. But there is no Trevor Lawrence. And and this is classic Golden Domer stuff to me, Alan. Like, how do they finally get in a conference and they dodge playing Trevor Lawrence? It's it's actually a huge letdown for the ACC. Yeah, ACC officials everywhere are so unhappy. This happened, obviously. But what do you like here? Well... Maybe you have it's a little protection here. Maybe you're gonna try and sneak two teams in the playoff here. They just trade losses to one another. Notre Dame gets a win. Clemson beats them on the other side with Lawrence. Man, how how overrated is Notre Dame? That's a good question. Are they lightly overrated? Can they score with Clemson? Man, I'll go Notre Dame here. I don't like it. I don't have a feel for how Clemson's going to respond in this game. They were they were kind of all over the place in that BC game. They gave up 28 first half points and some legitimate points. It wasn't too fluky. And then they shut the door. So are we getting first half Clemson? Are we getting second half Clemson? I'm not sure. I think we're going to get second half Clemson. I think this Clemson team now is over the shock of Lawrence being gone. They know what it takes to win. They're going to get the rallying cry all week long. The defense you need to carry us, you can't rely on an inexperienced but uber-talented quarterback. I also just think Notre Dame is not in the same hemisphere as Clemson talent-wise. Well, neither is Boston College, and they almost won that game. That's true. That's true, but I'm going to go with that's the warning shot. And Clemson is now aware, hey, whoa, we can be beat by mortals. Notre Dame is a, is theoretically a better version of Boston College. No messing around. That's the second half Clemson team. I'm going to say that. I don't like this. I wouldn't touch this one either. What I will say is this, Alan. This is where, unfortunately, due to COVID, we're robbed from something that makes college football just so much more special than what we're getting to see this year. Is seeing Notre Dame play this game at home. Yeah. Which is impossible. But imagine that happening. 
And then imagine this inexperienced quarterback going in there and just all the pageantry and the history. And I mean, you just don't have it. Instead, you go to an empty stadium. Basically, there's, you know, 10,000 people there, whatever. So I try to imagine in my mind what that would feel like turning that on and watching it on Saturday. We'll settle for this. I'm happy that we have it. Uh, but certainly we're robbed of of sort of the joy. Same thing with Florida, Georgia. Uh, obviously, I want to go. Alan, I think you probably want to go as well. If any of you have tickets lying around, hey, message go. us, DM us. We will be happy to sit with you and uh, provide you with podcast commentary all game long and or me throwing and breaking things if we wind up losing. Who knows? Uh, at any rate, Alan, any other items as we close out the pod? I think we've talked quite a lot about everything. But again, this is such a huge week for this program. I'm excited to come on here next week and be completely wrong about my Georgia pick. I hope so. I'm going to be devastated. This is it. This is the big reveal. I don't believe in Grantham. I still want him gone. I don't think he's going to turn a big corner. But man, am I hoping that we turn the tiniest of corners to at least get a win against Georgia right here, Alan. It would be so nice on so many levels. This is it. This is, again, if you followed our podcast since Dan Mullen got here, since we first heard the news, it has all led to this game. We typically don't hype games up like this one, but that's just the reality of what this is. It's going to be just, hopefully, Alan, great theater and hopefully a great winner again. On Monday, I don't know what I'm going to say. There's ways this could go where it's going to be unhappy James. We'll see. Well, hopefully you'll be joining us here regardless, but... Hopefully, it's going to be after Gator Land. Thank you, Gator Nation. We'll talk to you guys next week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.